The Christmas countdown's on at JCPenney. Through Saturday, use your coupon and dash away with very merry savings on last-minute gifts across the store. Like fine jewelry stocking stuffers up to 70% off after coupon. And save up to 50% on comfy, stylish outerwear for the whole fam. Add curbside pickup to make your trip extra quick. We got your holiday. JCPenney. Offers good on select items through 1224. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And, of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer, the hardcore legend himself, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Conrad. And I think uh, we're all open to differences in this uh, field of podcasting, but uh, people can decide for themselves what the, what the best podcast is, where this one falls in that spectrum. But is there any doubt that we have the best podcast name no, I think the name is number one, and I think the conversation is number one. I've had a blast so far. What's your experience been like so far? Man, I have really completely enjoyed it. You know, I I, I swear, uh, uh, the last time we were in studio, when I left, I felt similar to when I used to have big matches. Wow. I had that great uh, that little post, uh, post-show glow going on. Yeah. Yeah, it really felt good, and I, I, I texted our mutual friend, Barry Bloom, and I think I used the same verbiage I did with you. I said, it feels like we're hitting a home run every time out. I totally agree, man. And I think uh, the, the feedback that we've gotten has been incredible. And I can't wait to talk about today's story. It's one of the bigger WrestleMania moments of your career, good or bad, WrestleMania 20. And what a surprise this was that, you know, here you are with The Rock. I don't think a lot of folks would have ever imagined that that was possible in 04. It felt like the company had for lack of a better word, giving your opponent evolved a little bit. Like it felt like the company was in a constant state of motion, but now here we are the rock and sock connection again. I didn't think it would be possible either. Um, I don't know if we want to jump this far ahead this soon. Um, but when I got into the angle with, um, with evolution, I think we were already a few weeks in and, uh, it was clear we were onto something clear going all the way back to, December of 2003, when we put the angle into motion, when I walked out of a match on uh, on Raw. Uh, so we came back. It feels very much like I'm fighting for my life against Evolution for a few weeks with the idea of having this big showdown at uh, Mania. Then I get a call from Brian Gewertz, who had been the head writer at Raw, may still have been at that point. And now runs one of Rock's production companies right. to show you how highly Rock thinks of him. And Brian says, uh, how would you like to team up with The Rock to take on the three members of Evolution? And I kind of shrugged and laughed. I said, well, that sounds great. But I was told The Rock would only come back for something big. And Brian says, yeah, he thinks this is big. And I get the the flutters, you know, whatever they are going down the whole body. Because honestly, until that moment, I would not have thought that The Rock thought that 
I was big enough to come back for. I really didn't. I thought he, I thought he had, you know, Hogan and Flair and Steve, like the guys that, uh, not that I remember him having any matches with, with Flair, and he may or may not have, but I'm talking about, uh, you know, there's the hierarchy. Right. Like these are the guys I might consider coming back for, and that he obviously respected me, liked me, didn't, I did not think that he thought of me as being on that level. Well, that's, uh, that's got to make you feel good, just a vote of confidence from somebody that you had a lot of respect for to hold you in such high regard. Um, this all starts as crazy as it sounds, at least it seems like. In June of '03, the Observer would write, Foley called the WWE up recently and wanted to come back, although not to wrestle, at least for a short run. A lot of that is to get some visibility at the time for his novel, Tatum Brown, which is coming out combined with him being gone for so long, he'd be a fresh character. No decision was made as of June 1st, but everyone, including me, presumes he'll be the referee for Hell in a Cell, and it'll be announced on June 9th. Foley had been doing voiceovers for TNN, as you could hear him constantly if you watch the network. Boy, the timing of that, uh, given a conversation we just had. Before right we before we went on the air, yeah. I was talking about my uh, my voice work for TNN. So in some ways, I was on the WWE show more when I was absent than I was when I was there because I was on four or five different times uh, a show doing yeah. the voiceovers. And it was never acknowledged that it was me. Uh, but so I still had my, I still had my, you know, finger on the pulse. Um, I had left under less than ideal circumstances, as a lot of us do. And that was uh, October of, uh, October 2001, I had left under less than ideal circumstances involving, of all things, a children's book. This is uh, the Halloween hijinks. And I, I had gone on uh, to talk about uh, Foley is Good. And as soon as I, I uh, <coughs> got on the Today, the Today Show, it's amazing how important the New York Times is in the bigger scheme of things and how much of the world, the artistic world, revolves around it. Because uh, even with Have a Nice Day, having done so well and hit number one, I've got this follow-up and I've got a... Um, uh, <laughs> Promote, not a promoter, a publicist. Yeah, who's now working with me on my second book. We, you know, we've got a good friendship, but she's saying I can't get, I can't get these venues. I can't get people. I can't get this bird. I can't get this. Um, I said, what about the Today Show? It got back says they don't do wrestlers. That's their. They don't do wrestlers. And then I get a call about the New York Times. And uh, Jennifer Souter was her. Now her name is Jennifer Robinson. Still in touch after all these years with my old publicist. She goes, I've got some great news. I go, what is it? She goes, the New York Times is doing an article on you. I said, well, that is good. She reprimands me. She goes, no, no, that's not good. That's great. That's great as, as, as in it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. So I got a little nervous at first that they were coming out there to bury me, you know, right. New York Times. So I remember calling Barry Blaustein, director of Beyond the Mat, and told him the deal. And he goes, Mick, he said, uh, wrestler writes book, is a good, writes novel, is a good story. Wrestler writes novel and it stinks is not a good story. They're not coming to your house to write that story. And that lifted, that made sense, right? Yeah. So the woman comes out. She does a wonderful job. Uh, they release something. I think it's on the front page of the art section. 
And immediately, all these outlets that said no are saying not just yes, yeah. but when yes tomorrow. Yeah, when can you? People magazines out at the house that I get asked and I said, can you, uh, Jennifer says, can you be on the Today Show tomorrow? And I said, I thought they didn't do wrestlers. She goes, they're doing you. So can I tell you, can I walk you through my yes. Today Show experience? Yes, right? Please. She says, Katie Couric is going to be doing the interview. I go, oh, I like Katie. She goes, well, Katie can be tough. I said, well, yeah, she's tough, but she's fair. And that yeah. was the only thing I was concerned with was, uh, you know, people being fair. Yeah. So I go out. It's a five-minute segment. And um, the first couple questions are a little tough about the content of the show. And then it, then it lightens up a little bit. She says, I also understand you've written a children's book. And I said, well, yes, I have. And I believe both my book and yours were on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. And then I feel I'll never forget the feeling of Katie Kirk's hand on my knee. And she says, may I say it was a pleasure to be on that list with you. Right. And so we finish our thing. And as I'm walking through, they have the big soundproof doors. Right. So I open up the door and as that door is slowly closing and it's about about this much before closing. So I can actually hear what's going on. I hear her go. He was cute. And I didn't take that to mean like, oh, he was hot, cute, like a cutie patootie was the word going around. Like, I just think she or she had an image in her mind of what a wrestler was going to be. Yeah. And so the next day, I get a call from Jennifer, and she said, "Guess who wants you?" I said, "The Today Show." I said, "Who?" She said, "The Today Show." I said, "But I was just on the Today Show." And she said, "As soon as they heard that you had another children's book coming out, this would be Halloween hijinks. They booked you for Halloween Day." So I go the real mature route. I said, "Does that mean Katie likes me?" <laughs> oh my said, gosh! That's and so she great. said, "It means someone likes you because they just booked you five months in advance." So now I start having friction with the company. Um, the friction is that I mentioned in the New York Times article that I would like to write a novel. So Judith Regan of Regan Books, who WWE had their deal with and have just ended their deal, but she's the one I did my first two, you know, the, the first two memoirs with. And I had a good relationship with Judith. Uh, she makes me an offer sight unseen on a book I haven't even written. And I tell her, I, I would feel better about actually writing it before we yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that makes me a mark, you know, no. they're not, I but I, you, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure I could do it and I wanted to make sure it was good. And as soon as WWE gets wind of the fact that, uh, I've been offered, I have an offer. That's when Mr. McMahon, which could be his Achilles heel, the control factor decides he does not want that novel outside of. W- so you can do another book, I but can. it has to be with his partner. That's what own. he said. Yeah. And this is where, if there's a great, there's a great scene, there's a lot of great scenes in the Get Back documentary, The Beatles. It's yeah. really extensive. While I was watching it, I watched all three episodes. There's about two hours in a, two hours to each episode. I watched all six in a row. And at a certain point, I'm like, man, there's some busy work going on here. I don't know if we need all this. But then when you see it as a, as a, a total thing, you can understand, you get to see the nuts and the bolts and everything that works. And there's this scene that could have saved the Beatles where George Harrison says to John, just kind of offhandedly, he says, you know, I only get one or two songs, an album. I'm not going to do a George Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said, I've got all these songs. 
I'd like to do my own thing. Do you think that would be okay? And John says, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't. And Paul later was asked about it. He said, you know, recently, could that have saved the Beatles? He said, yeah, I think it could have. If everybody would have been allowed to go out and do their own thing, you could have kept that group. I think I'm considering me and Vince to be the Beatles. Right. And I was the guy that wanted to do my outside project. And I just, as stupid as it sounds, I just didn't want the W, I didn't want the logo, logo on, it. on it. And I remember talking to JR. I don't mean to cut you off, but was that a point of pride about, I want to be able to prove yeah. I can do this on my yeah. own? Yeah. It's, there's, hey, look, you know, you go outside, you go outside the auspices of WWE, out of the friendly confines, but it can also, can also be a little bit constricting. Yeah. And I just wanted to do my own thing and have it out there. You can ask Barry Bloom about this sometime where he's, JR goes, well, hell, he goes, you know, um, I, I said, Chair, what happens if you guys don't like the novel I wrote? He said, I don't see uh, why uh, we wouldn't like it. It's not like there's anything about anal sex in there. I went, actually, like it, I went, the book went some dark places. Yeah. And so I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm, it's like battering heads with WWE. At the same time, I've got this appointment, uh, this thing coming up with uh, uh, the Today Show. And for the first time ever, a talent asked that WWE be banned from the studio. Wow. So I just, I, I heard, I think Gary was the, uh, I can't remember his last name. He was the head of uh, PR at that time. And I called up and he told me they were going to have a team there. I said, no, absolutely not. This is something I was asked to do because they liked me. My children are going to be there. My wife's going to be there. I don't want you guys. I may have dropped an F-bomb on them, uh, but I probably just said messing it up. And then I called uh, WWE. I called the Today Show producer, said I didn't want WWE uh, in the building. And I had them banned from the building. Wow. So the next, so we had a great, great time, right? It's a great time. It's a tough time in America because it's post 9 11. Yeah. So we've got to dress out. We got, there's no green rooms open. You have to dress out in the hallway. NBC Studios had had something mailed to them, powder, whether it was legit or not. I don't know, but it was a scary time in America. And here I've got this moment to rejoice be with my family. Um, we meet Soledad O'Brien, who tells us she grew up in the house next door to the one we just moved into. Oh, wow. And thus begins a 20-year friendship with Soledad O'Brien. I turn from my conversation with Soledad, and I don't see little Mickey, who's not quite a year old. He's about 10 months old. I said, where's Mickey? And my wife says, Katie has him. And I look out, and Katie's holding my son, who's dressed like a pumpkin, to close the show. And I thought at that time, this is one of the great moments of my life. Of you know, course. one of the things we get to do is decide our own WrestleMania moments. This is at a time when I hadn't quite come to terms with the legacy of the Hell in a Cell uh, and accepted that it was a, you know, an, an incredible moment. Yeah. Not just in wrestling, but not just in my life, but in wrestling as well. And at that point, I was like, hey, you know, if you want to consider that moment where I was knocked unconscious and ended up with a tooth in my nose and scared my family to death, you want to consider that a great moment in my life? That's not for you to decide, right? Like, you can consider that a great moment. And now I do. But I was like, I'm going to go with Katie holding my child to end the Today Show. On national TV. So, so I'm just telling you, the friction, the it wasn't good. I went to JR. We had a meeting at Nassau Coliseum. So wait, does he call the meeting because you banned him from? How does that go? I can't remember if we spoke on the phone or if we had the meeting at Nassau Coliseum where I wasn't even booked on the show. 
I come back in as their uh, uh, commissioner for yeah. a far less successful second run. It only lasted four or five weeks um, because I, w- I clearly wasn't happy there. And Jr. said, uh, "Her." Heard about the Today Show. <laughs> I said, yeah. Has anyone ever done that before? I said, can't say that they have. And then he said, Mick, Vince and I feel like we are at a part in this relationship where if we force you to stay, uh, the relationship will be uh, har- harmed, for, you know, uh, inexorably. Yeah, I'm probably not saying that correctly. You get the idea. It would be without. It's going to go sour. Yeah, yeah it's going to go sour. But if we were to let you go now, because I'd ask to be let out of my contract uh, a year early, um, we let you go now. We think we're in a position where we can work together again. And does that sound right? I said, yeah, I think it does. He said, well, consider this your release. I go walking away. There's a ramp that goes up to the parking lot at uh, Nassau Coliseum. The last person I see is Stacy Keebler. And I'd always had a good relationship with Stacy. And I walked past. I said goodbye. She goes, are you leaving? And I said, yeah. And I gave her a hug. And I walk about another 10 yards. And I come back. And I said, in this business, just because something usually is a certain way doesn't mean it needs to be that way. And she looks at me and says, are you talking about my boobs? And oh. I said, actually, I am talking about your boobs. And she said, don't worry. I'm not getting a boob job. And I went, Okay, and that's exactly what I wanted to talk to her about because I thought there might be pressure on her. Had you look. heard that there would be no, pressure? No, I had not heard you that. You just knew, though. I could just see that this one of these things is not like the other, and I think that's good, you know. And makes her different. I mean, everything makes different. We think we've learned that lesson with yes. the women now that not everybody goes for the, the same, same look. There's some widely divergent styles, you know, on the women's end, and that's great for the business. But that was the last thing I said for a year and a half. And then I did call them up. Uh, Any conversation with Vince after that? I don't believe so. I know you've had an yeah. on-again, off-again yeah. relationship. But despite that, would there still be birthday and Christmas messages? Sort of <sighs> no more no more Vince and Linda singing uh, happy birthday together on my uh on my recorder or my recording machine, um, like it was in 2000, never hit that height again. I can't tell you for a fact that we didn't have any communication. It wasn't warm. Yeah, it wasn't great. And, but in the meantime, I was still in touch with Sue Aitchison. She knew I lived on Long Island and I did things, you know, for free for the company that, you know, they're involved in a lot of great organizations. So it wasn't, like I was completely shut out, but I hadn't been on TV in any way, shape or form, uh, except when I'd be featured like or, or be one of those guys who was losing to one of the current stars in a video package. And yeah. I always thought that was a great honor to be thought of highly enough to be in somebody's package. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that came out the way I wanted it. I know what you mean. (laughs) So that's setting the stage for the phone call I give uh, Vince uh, because I just thought I could come in and uh, add something to the Hell in a Cell with Triple H and Kevin Nash. And I remember the the Raw was held in Miami and I was scared, right? Like I thought I was gone for good. I remember like looking at the clock. Uh, we're not at my watch because I've never had a watch, but looking at the clock, 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late, hour late. All right, I'd better go. Um, I kind of uh, 
hung outside the door longer, you know, longer than uh, whatever. And I opened up the door and the first person I saw was Stacy Keepler. And she came over running into my arms because she was with Test at the time. And she knew that bothered Test when she jumped into my arms in a fun way. Um, and from there, it was like, I'd just been there yesterday. So we do this angle. Uh, you want to allude to the angle? Yeah, you know? so okay. uh, before we get going, I just want to find out, were you thinking you were going to actually get back in the ring? Did you? So none of that was planned. It was no, just, no, okay. none of that was planned. Uh, I was still uh, three bills and change at that time, but I thought I could add something to the, the Hell in a Cell. The show. Yeah. Hey, are you ready? The Christmas countdown's on at JCPenney. Through Saturday, use your coupon and dash away with very merry savings on last-minute gifts across the store. Like fine jewelry stocking stuffers up to 70% off after coupon. And save up to 50% on comfy, stylish outerwear for the whole fam. Add curbside pickup to make your trip extra quick. We got your holiday. JCPenney. Offers good on select items through 1224. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. So, uh... We'll break down Kevin Nash and Triple H in a cell and you being the referee. But but first, I want to ask uh, about what Dave wrote here. He writes, Foley at first was coming in just for the pay-per-view and two TVs with the idea of plugging his book on the second TV appearance. He had such good timing returning that he immediately agreed to work uh, with the house shows as a referee as well. Originally, he was to do the June 16th Raw, but also added the 23rd since it's MSG. And now there's a good chance he'll appear from time to time on TV going forward because he enjoyed his return. The idea from the company standpoint is for him to wrestle later in the year, coming out of retirement at this point for a street fight style match with Randy Orton. The idea is they're going to try to make Orton into another rock level superstar. If you go with the idea, they have to try it with someone. He's not a bad guy to try with. Of course, the odds are great he can't be The Rock because few guys in history can. Orton didn't have the presence to be a star at that level before a crowd last week, but with a new video entrance linked with Flair and Triple H and the Mega Push, particularly the interaction with Foley on Raw, it did seem to be changing fast. It's funny because that same link and same interaction with Foley would have made half the guys on the roster. Orton isn't a bad choice because he's 21 or 22 and barring injury should be a huge star as he picked things up fast in OVW. But this is why when I hear people say that you have to get yourself over and the company can't book you to become a star and that there are guys, there are nothing the guys complaints about not getting a push. Boy, that's a load. While natural charisma plays a part, fans reactions are based on how the company presents you. This company killed Goldberg. They can make Orton. It's not 100% and ability, verbal ability and charisma play a part, but company presentation overrides all of that. The plan for Orton is to work with and go over Shawn Michaels, I'm guessing SummerSlam, and for Michaels to establish him as a great wrestler. The idea would then be his next program would be with Foley, with the idea that Foley can put him over and make the fans take Orton seriously as a brawler. And then given his work in helping make Kane, Rock, and Undertaker, Triple H into bigger stars, they're kind of giving The Undertaker a career rebirth when he was on the verge of getting stale. Foley himself has talked about wrestling one more match if he can get into shape, but he talks about it as if it was WrestleMania. Still, he's on TV clearly positioning himself for a match with Orton. So how did the Orton thing come to be? Well, this is at a time when I could have a phone call with Vince and be in his office the next day pitching it. I was one of only like three or four guys who wasn't in Florida. 
Yeah. <laughs> I guess Taker was in Austin, Texas, right? Kane was in Knoxville. But basically, you know, there's two or three guys in the Northeast. So I'm only 90 minutes with traffic away from WWE. The first time I went in to meet with Mr. McMahon, I could literally see the smokestacks from Port Jefferson, which is the town next to the one I grew up in. So that was something we had in common. Um, and so I could make the phone call, say I want to pitch something, and it would be just him or just him and JR. Or at a certain point, it became him and John Laurinaitis. So I know it's Vince. I can't tell you for a fact if, Vince, if JR's there or John's there at that point. Um, he's, okay, what you got, pal? I said, Vince, uh, I'd like to enter the Royal Rumble and win it. And because I am neither a Raw or SmackDown guy, I would like to challenge both champions into a three-way dance to unify the WWE title and win that as well. And he looked at me and said, Mick, I have no interest whatsoever in doing that. I said, okay, I've got this idea for Randy Orton. And so Vince had this yellow legal pad, and I start giving him ideas. And the, it centers around walking away from a match, having a crisis in confidence, which I had never seen in wrestling, uh, but we do have in real life. Rick Flair. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had a crisis in confidence that day for sure. And um, and I and I started saying, and once I leave, Randy will try to goad me back in with like political attack ads. And I guess political attack ads were not as uh, omnipresent as they are now. Right. But he said, uh, attack ads. I said, yeah, everyone hates those ads. Like Mick Foley claims to be the hardcore legend. Yeah. But is he really? And he starts writing all this stuff down. And at the, at the proper time, we make plans uh, to do this match that I will walk out on uh, with Randy. Something that's never been seen before. And then he will goad me back out of retirement. Taking a little page from Rocky II, where Rocky was retired. Apollo wants him back, and he's got the you know, Apollo uh, Apollo Creed versus the Italian Chicken, and and then the guys at the gym were da- down on Rocky. He was carrying spit buckets, and then it's like, you know, uh, he comes back to Mickey, who at first is forbid him from f- fighting because of his uh, damage to his eye, and then Mickey says, "I say we knock his block off," and then thus begins, you know, the the road to uh, redemption for Rocky. But for me, I'm going to just flat out refused to wrestle. But the night before we pulled the trigger on that angle, Stephanie calls me and says, Mick, we're going to go a different way. I said, "Uh, what different way? And she says, we're going to have Evolution jump you. I said, what happened to me backing out of the match? She said, my dad doesn't think the fans will ever forgive you. Mm. I said, I said, let me let me talk to your dad. So I call him up. And he recites with Stephanie, Mick, you just work so hard. I'd hate for you to go out this way. The last people think, I just don't think they're going to forgive you. I said, Vince, I'd heard he was a Western enthusiast. I said, have you seen the movie Shane? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, go back and watch it and tell me how good that movie would have been if Shane accepts the challenge the first time. Because it's all about find that movie's all about this former gunfighter rediscovering, finding that dark place in his soul that he's tried to hide for so long. 
if he just if they just said Shane, you gutless coward. All right, now we're thirty minutes in and we've got no movie. And he said he's going to trust my judgment. He disagreed with me. He thought there was a good chance it would ruin my career, but that if I felt that strongly about it, he would let me do it my way. And then the big challenge became trying to talk Randy into hocking a loogie on me. Uh, he later became really adept at it, right? <laughs> but that first time, he's like, ah, oh, man, I uh, Mick, I got, you know, I was like, Randy, you have to do it. And I think he said something about like that. Couldn't I just, I said, we got to be able to see it. If you don't, if we can't see it. It's not as nearly as meaningful. And he was like, oh, he, he was so against it because he didn't want to be that disrespectful. Right. And I said, Dude, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And what was so fun was to be part of that whole building process. Because in the, I guess I'll do the loogie first and then we'll talk about more of the building process, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, we get in there and this is where I, I borrow a little bit from uh, the original Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds when Burt is contemplating putting the jersey back on and uh, leading the mean machine. And he asks an inmate who had been, I think, a former football player and he was a lifer because he'd taken a swing at a guard. And Bert says, was it worth it? And he says, yeah, to me it was. So we have, I'm in the role of Bert Reynolds, Shawn Michaels in the role of this grizzled uh, lifer. And I'm asking Shawn about coming back, I think it was the, the year before, uh, against Triple H. And we do that, it, was it worth it? And he goes, to me it was. And then I, real dramatically, I say, Get me my flannel. <laughs> Get me my flannel. Uh, Ryan loved that line. Uh, uh, did he? <laughs> I'm sure. He had to. That's, that feels like he would have written that. Uh, no, that's a Foley one right yeah. there, yeah. Um, and so here we go. Push comes to shove. I've got an expert in Vince saying it's going to be the death knell to my career. I feel in my heart. Like the fans, uh, I have accrued enough goodwill for them to take a wait-and-see attitude. I come out, you know, it's for the IC title, which I never won. I do the slow lap around the ring, and then I just keep on walking up that aisle. And now we're live, you know, when Randy confronts me. And I can't remember the exact verbiage, but you're walking away. You're nothing but a coward. And then just as I had urged him to do, he he dug down deep as far into his lungs as he could, got something with a yellowish, yellowish green tinge to it, and he hocked that loogie right on my face. And you could feel the fan. They want me to respond. You know, they really want me to. I don't know if we've ever had a loogie of that magnitude, you know, that uh, I'm sure, well, other than the, the Brett hocked up on Vince. Uh, but bl- that that scene is still so memorable. I can describe it in my mind. I remember it. I mean, I didn't just watch it this week for prep. I think all of us remember that because it did cross the line a little bit of what's allowed in wrestling and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was beautiful about it, one of the things, I think this may have been the best thing I was involved with over uh, as far as one of my ideas being played out, is that when I left – that was a December 10th, somewhere around that area, early December, maybe December 3rd. 
uh, Randy basically had six, seven weeks to build, uh, to build up for my return. And that's when those uh, political attack ads started airing. And not only did they do what I asked, they like went over what I would have thought possible. You know, and it was like, I think they concluded with going, the truth is Mick Foley is nothing more than a little bitch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, uh, I did come back at the Rumble. Um, I think I had to, uh, uh, I think I had to eliminate Test backstage to get a spot. And then I told Randy, I said, man, we've got so much realism in this uh, angle. So when you and I exchange punches, let's really bring them in there. He's like, look at him. I said, yeah, make them real, man. People can tell the difference. And the thing about it, Conrad, is when we got out there, we were swinging for the fences. Nobody really could tell the difference. They look like crappy working punches, what they look like. And also, despite the fact that I've been training at that time for like four months, and I dropped, I think I dropped about 40 pounds at that time. I would go on to, I would go from 330 to 270. And I worked a total of like six months by the time I worked to transform myself for a total of six months by the time, um, by the time that WrestleMania match took place. But even given that, I was blown up within 30 seconds. <laughs> I, within 30, because there's nothing like it, you know? It's right. one thing to be on a, a treadmill or a bike. Uh, it's another thing to be in there with the crowd and the nerves. So, uh, you know, despite the fact nobody could tell that the punches were real, and if anything looked worse than the working punches, it was, uh, it was intense, and it got us to that next level. This segment of Folius Pod is brought to you by Zen Nicotine Pouches, a fresh way to enjoy nicotine without all the baggage of cigarettes, dip, or vape. No more smelling like an ashtray, no more spit cups, and no batteries to charge or leaky equipment to deal with. Zen Nicotine Pouches are smoke-free, spit-free, and available in 10 varieties like spearmint, wintergreen, citrus, and many more. And for your convenience, each variety comes in two strengths, so you can easily find the satisfaction level that's perfect for you. Zen, America's number one nicotine pouch, is available in over 100,000 locations nationwide, meaning it's never been easier to find your Zen. So head over to Zen.com. Slash find to locate a store near you. That's ZYN.com slash find. Uh, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Going back uh, a little bit, there was talk in the Observer that initially Hunter versus Goldberg at SummerSlam might be replaced with you and Hunter at SummerSlam. Was that ever discussed? Do you remember that? This would have been SummerSlam 03. Ah, yeah, vaguely, uh, even because Hunter and I had great chemistry and, uh, even in setting the deal for the, uh, the referee for his match with Kevin, uh, the storyline was that in each of the two previous, uh, cell matches, maybe there'd been three at that point for, uh, referees had been injured and the referees were taking a stand saying the cell was too dangerous, not, uh, too dangerous. And then Steve Austin was like, I've got a guy, you know, I've got a guy. So when I showed up, this is one of those things that on paper looks ridiculous. 
you know, the whole, I have the power to count to three, right? That no matter what happens, I'm going to be there when the dust clears and I'm going to make that count. And so Triple H lays me out pretty authoritative fashion, you know, with authority. And as he's walking up the aisle, I go, what? Yeah, <laughs> I can still do it. Yeah, I can still do it. And he, oh, man. And, you know, he comes back, lays another beating on me, goes to walk away. And it's still one, two. It's uh, those simple things similar to what we did when I transformed from Mankind to Cactus Jack. Mm-hmm. And on one very definite level, I was just a guy taking a shirt off. And, but on another level, it was like a ghost from the past that appeared and he sold it that way. So that's the way he sold me as a referee. So I can't remember for a fact if, if, or maybe they were thinking about that, uh, without letting me know. I think, uh, you know, I was getting into some pretty good shape. Hunter was, uh, it was and still is a great ring general, uh, with a good storyline. I think we could have had a good match. So June 23rd. At MSG as Mick Foley Appreciation Night. <laughs> the little kid in you had to think that was pretty damn nifty. I did, but this shows you how much WWE has grown because at a certain point, they wanted to make that a Hall of Fame induction. Oh. Hall of Fame inductions weren't then in 2003 what they are now. Right. Uh, and uh, they hadn't yet moved even to the theaters, let alone, I guess they may have been in theaters. You know, they're out of the ballrooms, into theaters, but not doing arenas. Yeah. It wasn't quite what it would become. And then I remember Steph saying, you know, my dad's afraid it might look disrespectful to guys like Blassie and people of of that time if we induct a guy at 35. I think I was 35 at the time. And I went, okay, he said, we're going to make it like a hardcore appreciation night. And one thing I regret is that uh, Crash Holly wasn't on the list. It wasn't like I made the list. I wanted Terry Funk to be there. And Terry, uh, you know, went on to be a great promo between me and Terry in 2006. You know, Terry wanted to be compensated for making that long trip. And when I found that out, you know, Steph, I said, what about Terry? And Stephanie went, man, God, I don't know how you tell you this, but... Terry wanted a lot of money to come in. And that hurt my feelings. Legit did. And we later aired it out in a really good video uh, um, in 2006 where I said it was the last thing I did. I was going to on my hands and knees and crawl over to Amarillo, Texas and spit on (laughs) Terry's grave. It was a heavy interview. For another time, another place, we'll talk about it. Um, But it was turned into a celebration at the Garden. I wish Crash had been there. It hurt. It really hurt him that he wasn't there. But I was basically just looking at the list I was given, and then I said, "What about Terry Funk?" To yeah. Add to it, but it was Al Snow and it was Rob Van Dam, and I don't know who else was there. But it was, uh, yeah, a little appreciation night. It was really cool. Did uh, did the wife and kids come and everybody? I wish they had. I wish they had uh, because they were definitely at home. Because I believe I ended my appreciation night by being thrown down a flight of stairs. <laughs> I believe I did. I don't think those sentences have ever touched uh, in I, history until just You now. can't just. That would be like having a birthday party without a, you know somebody's face in a cake. You're going to have an appreciation night. You're going to leave only getting yourself over? No, that's that's not the, the, our way. It's not the Foley way. Right. So as long as you're going to leave, you might as well get thrown down a flight of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they had to find to find the hardcore belt. They had to place a call to Tommy Dreamer, who had it over his mantle. 
So Tommy brings it in, uh, and it might as well be like encased in <laughs> in stone because this plexiglass is thick. It's very ungiving. So I get hit from behind. I, I think I said something to Flair and uh, and Randy, who had lost a match together. Oh, you really showed that? You really proved yourself tonight. And next thing I know, here comes this thing from behind. Boom. You're expecting it to shatter, but it doesn't. The only thing that shatters is part of my scalp, you know. Wow. It opens up that major Grand Canyon divot. And in the worst of all wrestling circumstances, it hurts like hell, and you don't see a drop of blood. Because it mixes in with the dark hair and because the angle is so quick, it's boom. And now here comes the throw down the stairs. At that time, I'm still totally against wearing any type of padding. You know, it's got to feel real. And I end up with a deep shoulder bruise that will bother me for about two months. That doesn't set in until I make that. Two hours, it's about an hour and a half drive. At that time, getting out of the garden early it takes about 90 minutes. It took me about 90 minutes to get back home. And I can, by the time I get home, I can already feel it tightening. And I know from experience, oh, this is not good. This is really going to hurt tomorrow. I glow up into my, climb into my bed. My wife said, how'd it go? I said, oh, man, it was really good. And she said, can you take the garbage out? <laughs> take the garbage out. Come up again. She said, uh, could you uh, take care of the guinea pigs? It really smells up there. I go up there. And the third time I lay down and she says something else, I said, you know, 90 minutes ago, 20,000 people were chanting my name. But it's the highs and lows. Right? Yes. You, you come you come back home and you're no big deal. And that's probably good for your ego. Yeah. You're treated like a big deal and you act like a big deal around your house. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, yeah, I think you, you deserve to be taken down a peg every now and then. I didn't need to be taken down then quite that far. Uh, but that was a tough time physically for me because that bruise was so deep. But then Randy took that ball and that's what led, yeah, and ran with it. That's what led up to my, uh, return, you know, in December. So we had this clock ticking for a while, you know, what, when was the date where the, with the, uh, uh, MSG was 623. Yeah, 623. Yep. So I didn't come back for about five months. And when I did come back, I bailed out of that match. And uh, I'm so glad that I, you know, stuck to my gut feeling and that Vince uh, trusted me on that. Because had it failed, you know, that could have been that could have been a serious blow to the way people thought about me. But it didn't. That segment uh, added a million viewers to Raw. Did it really? Yes. That segment wow. added a million. And then Shawn Michaels and Kevin Nash against Ric Flair and Randy Orton lost 601,000. So that'll put some butts in seats. Put some eyes on the product at least. Yeah, well, that's nice to know. Yeah. But even though a million people saw it, the missus wasn't there. Right. I feel weird even asking this, but you sort of alluded to it last week. So I think maybe it's an okay follow-up, but... You said that her her feelings and your feelings specifically when she wasn't welcomed backstage at Survivor Series 96. But we saw the footage of you and your fam at Monday night or, or at the Royal Rumble with The Rock yeah. that we saw in Beyond the Mat and all the brutal chair shots. But this is 90 minutes from home, and it's Madison Square Garden, your dream home arena, yeah. the spiritual home of the company, and it's Mick Foley night, and she's not there. Does she still... 
I don't know, uncomfortable with WWE at that well, point. Keep in mind uh, that after the uh, the Rumble, um, with the Rock. several months, yeah, several months later, um, twenty twenty does an interview in which my wife, in attempting to stick up for me and the business, tr- tries explaining the fallout from some of the stuff I've done. She thinks she's protecting the business, but I realize it's kind of making me look. She's going a little overboard in her urge to, you know, her hope of protecting her husband and, uh, and, and letting people know that what I do is difficult. So when she would say he walks like an 80 year old man, I would say, yeah, but like a sexy 80 year old man. You're trying to soften it up. But they, you know, through creative editing, that stuff's taken out. And it did appear if you were watching and didn't know anything else about me, you're, lo- you're looking at a guy who's on his last mental legs to the point where I start going through airports and total strangers who are not wrestling fans are coming up to me and saying, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Oh. And now you're in that very unlikely position where instead of defending the business, you are openly admitting that you don't get hurt as bad as they think you're getting hurt. Yes. I said, it's not like that every day, right? They're building that case around the cell match. They assume it's that thing. Right, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this is part of the reason why I got out of wrestling full-time when I did, because my kids are seeing these matches. I told them, Daddy never gets hurt. And now they're finding, Dad lies, you know, and Dad's coming home, you know, with uh, bruises and, you know, he's having trouble and he can't, I'm sorry, I can't go out and play today. And basically, you know, if we're having a catch or, you know, playing soccer, if that ball doesn't come right to me, I'm not getting to it because my lateral movement, my knees are shot, especially from not wearing the knee pads and working that physical style. So a lot of things, you know, there's a reason why I retired, you know, head injuries, uh, knees are all banged up. It, it was a good time for me to go, and I wish I had gone. And there's that part of me that wishes I'd only had the one return match. The perfect ending is you go out in the blaze of glory or you know, ride off into the sunset like I did. I didn't, it wasn't a blaze of glory. It was ride off into the sunset, February 2000. But I think everyone is due that one comeback match. Of course. And I did have that comeback match. For reasons we'll discuss, I felt unfulfilled, and that's why I had to – chase that singles match with Randy Orton. But but to follow up on what you asked, um, even though Vince did call up Collette and apologize uh, for making a comparison to um, uh, Mike Tyson's wife, um, uh, get, uh, what was her name? Robin Givens. Robin Givens, yeah. Robin Givens. Uh, I called Vince and he said, well, I was trying to make the point that uh, you were a sympathetic figure like Mike. And I went, but that's not what you said. You didn't say I looked to seem like Mike. You said my wife was uh, like Robin Givens. I said, then I reminded him of the charges Robin was laying it on Mike. Totally different. Totally different. And here's my wife trying to stand up for me. You know, I did think I came across, I came across like a guy who would not be doing an interview with Conrad Thompson, you know, 20, uh, 20 years later, uh, 21 years later. Like, uh, again, I'm having to, when you're having to explain to strangers that you don't get hurt as bad as they think you do, yeah. instead of being the guy saying, hey, listen, we get hurt worse than you think we do. It was just so contrary to everything I'd grown up with, you right. know, but like I said, total strangers praying for me. Like I was on my, my last legs, but after the phone, even though she appreciated the phone call events, 
she she didn't feel comfortable in that world. You know, it's sad. From then on. From then on, yeah. Yeah. So uh, later this night, uh, where we're talking about, um, you know, you had the big uh, situation, the celebration. Yeah. Uh, Foley and Vince are talking as Flair and Orton walk by. Foley makes a funny comment to Orton, really showing himself as a star as he's lost. It ends with a brawl. Uh, Flair taking the bumps to make Foley look good. Orton breaking a glass over Foley's head and throwing him down the stairs. Vince starts laughing and calls for a janitor to clean up the mess. <laughs> so the fall that you sort of broke down with the deep shoulder bruise, Vince is involved in all of this. And I'm just wanting to know creatively, did he let you sort of have it your way? I mean, these days we hear that, and who knows what to believe. I'm not there. And, and, and most weeks you're not, but Somebody comes over and says, hey, here's your dialogue today. Yeah. But this was your idea. Mm -hmm. And they tried to change it. And you dug your heels in and sold Vince on, okay, we're going to try it. So does he acquiesce to all of your little stuff? He doesn't acquiesce to everything. Uh, I come in with what I want to do. I worked really uh, well with Brian Gewertz. Um, I think at that time, even if you knew what you wanted to say, they would have to type it up and, uh, and get it approved. You'd make little tweaks. Uh, they would change things usually for the better, you know, like they would explain why they were doing this. And no doubt that I was a guy who needed, uh, uh, a little, a little guidance, a little editing when it came to some of my ideas. Uh, and I began, I mean, I really felt like I should be beaten down, especially when it comes, when I get wind of the rock, yeah, who's eventually going to come to my rescue. I guess what I'm driving at is, yeah. does Vince say, and the, can we throw you down the stairs, Mick? No, that would be my idea. <laughs> hey, that would be all me. Okay. Yeah, that would be okay. all me. They might have said, you know, what can we do to you, pal? Yeah. Uh, so it had to be something good. Uh, but like I said, it was that, you know, that Sherman tank of a, a plexiglass uh, case that Tommy Dreamer delivered to WWE that just, <laughs> I mean, it was like a 12-stitch type of thing. You didn't see a drop of blood. I think it was Bruce who told me afterwards, man, you're, ble you're bleeding really bad, but it's just blending into the what at that time was dark hair, dark, long, dark hair. So this is all supposed to be part of a way to promote a book. Uh, oh, no. At this point, the book has, at this point, I know the book isn't, you know, the book's not going to set the world on fire. I embarked on a really ambitious 30-city tour. You don't get paid for a book tour. First of all, you, you you don't get paid. You do get your travel reimbursed, and you are put up at amazingly nice hotels with an unlimited food budget. And I, uh, my publicist calls me and says, like, we're concerned that you're not eating. And I said, well, I'm eating. It's just I bring some stuff with me as protein bars. I go to a deli. And she said, you know, you can eat it, whatever you like. I said, you have to understand the way I broke in. I can't eat $50 scrambled eggs, no matter who's paying for it. <laughs> so, so whereas other guys rack up, you know, those. The Vader bills. Yeah, yeah the Vader bills. I'm handing in expenses for $10, $12, and they're concerned that I'm not eating. Yeah. Because I just thought, no, man, that's I, – I just – I can't do that. Yeah. can't do that. So I'll I bring all of this up because – Well, what I want to say is it was clear to me two weeks in that this book was not flying off the shelves. The Tatum Brown. Tatum Brown. And that I was – I would – the, the – uh, 
WWE was helping push the uh, appearances, which is really nice. They put it on their schedule, which really made a difference because I didn't have any social media at that time. And so these uh, signings. So Tatum Brown, is this back with Vince? Tatum Brown is, I wrote uh, during my absence. I'm saying as far as the distribution, you told us. No, 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 no. It's going to be my own thing. They give it a plug. Um, so that started with the Halloween book, and now this is the follow-up. This is the follow-up. This, yeah. is, this one's on my own. The first one on my own. And looking back on it, like, would it have hurt me at all to have it done by WWE? No. It probably would have even helped it, but I, it was really important to me to do my own thing. Yeah. You know, it's just like when a solo artist goes out there and they want to try it. you got to try it. And I'm glad I did. I wrote the two novels, written a handful of short stories since then. It's nice to know that I can write something, you know. Did you know about my big gift to my family for Christmas? No. I'll have to bring it to you for the It's It is a 150,000 word family memoir. Wow. In uh, beautiful leather. Uh, and there are only 25 copies, none of which will ever be sold. Wow. And that was my gift to my family. They're just stories of me as a dad. Very little wrestling in there. And when my kids opened it, they were aware I was working on some stories. They were not aware that I was writing a, you know, an honest to goodness memoir, beautiful photos in it. it. It took probably 500 hours of my time, between four and 500 hours. Wow. And it will never sell a copy. Um, so I do love writing. I do. I love it. Um, and I do understand that uh, even though I had some success, a lot of success with the first two, that the numbers that you put up should not alter how you personally That's feel correct. about a pro- project. So I'm really proud of the novel I wrote. But I just want to get back to saying, no, once I got into the thick of things and got You're involved, I'm doing it because I've got the bug. And I think I have something really important I can do. The the sales are not even a consideration at that point. Are you having a, I mean, I, I don't know, Mrs. Foley, but I assume given all that she's seen you put yourself through, she probably was like, oh, thankfully he's done. And now he's writing books. <laughs> and so when it's, okay, I'm going back, but it's just for this book. Yeah. And then you have fun and you fly down the stairs and she has to think, here we go again. Probably. Yeah. 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 I always had to call home after um, the pay-per-views. She was always worried. Just call them and know you're okay. Yeah. And for the first few years I did it, I did not have a cell phone. So there's that really just crazy visual of the guy who's just wrestled, like putting a hoodie on, going out into the crowd, finding a pay phone and be like, hey, I'm okay. You know, in 2000 and, um, six jumping ahead two years you know after the match with edge i call her up to let her know i'm okay after everything we've been through the first thing she says is is edge okay wow <laughs> because i and then when i watched the next night and i saw the edge he looked like he was in shock and his fingers were trembling and it made uh, sense it made sense to me uh but that was me that the little solitary figure huddled over a payphone to let my wife know I was okay so she was worried she knows I'm going to let it well I don't let it all hang out at mania that's uh, I think we're going to get to that yeah yeah that was part of what that's the big that's the deciding factor into in having that rematch with randy it's first singles match so after you get thrown down the stairs you're going to take a little time off you're still doing a book tour to promote tatum brown and they're worried you're not eating uh (laughs) but something awful happens in this era that i didn't know 
Your second house in Florida burns down. Yeah. Uh, what in the world happened? We moved from Florida because I, I, I never call anyone else a mark. I usually say uh, marking out in a positive way. You know, is, we are allowed to mark out. And in a sense, we all mark out or we wouldn't be listening to podcasts. Yes. We wouldn't be tuning in, especially to shows that make us angry half the time anyway. Um, but this uh, this is uh, I find this out. This is May 2001, I think. May 2001, I think, was when I find out about the fire. I might be off, but my recollection is it was on publication day of Foley is Good. And uh, we realized we have uh, the, the Today Show coming up. Um, I'm going to do a signing in my hometown. Everything's going great. I have been told that uh, uh, Lynn Brent would like to speak to me, Lynn and Talent Relations. And when my wife asked me what for, I said, I think they're going to ask if I can be in the main event of SummerSlam. So, so yeah, there really was something uh, to what you were saying. And I remember calling Lynn and she goes, Cactus? I said, yeah. She goes, Cactus? I said, Cactus? She goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but your house burned down. So this is the house we moved to because I, we moved out of because I was such a mark. I thought I really was the WWF commissioner. And I thought I'd have that job for five to 10 years, which I might have if I hadn't, you know, I took some time off because I want to be around when my third child was born. And then of all things, I didn't want to come back because I didn't think the storytelling was, I didn't like the story of me demanding my job back when it's not my company. That, uh, what percentage of fans would have looked down on me because I, was asking, was demanding my job back. The answer is probably zero. Yeah. For some reason, I I, I didn't think that an employee. I it's you 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 serve at the pleasure of Vince McMahon in yes. that job, which is yes. why I never got upset when I was let go, replaced as general manager. Uh, having my hip surgery, I've been told the job would be there waiting for me when I got back, and it wasn't. But that's his prerogative, right? right. If he sees a shinier toy in Kurt Angle, that's great. I realize I serve at his pleasure, and it was the same thing with uh, with that with that company. But I thought that's not a realistic storyline. I should have done it because I think I was always the boy who cried wolf after telling Vince I would do the match with him at Mania, which would have been a good not necessarily a good match, a big match, and a match I would have been well compensated for. And I just felt like I'd had the big send off. I did not want to come back. I I felt like I'd embarrassed myself by coming back so quickly, even though it was for a WrestleMania main event. And I really, truly wanted to be retired until I started getting the itch. And the itch came after uh, refereeing that cell match and seeing the reaction and realizing that, you know, as I was dropping weight and get down below 300, now I'm 280. And at 270, I was moving around, moving around pretty good. And I was working hard, and I felt like I could go. Felt like I had something to contribute. And uh, lo and behold, The Rock wants to team up with me. And now we have something that's really catching fire. And where I might get some controversy, is I, I tend to downplay my importance on shows. You think? Uh, a little, perhaps a little bit. When you, when you proudly pro- proclaim yourself to be, uh, 
Mister um, in your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of downplaying. Sure. But I will go on record as saying that no matter what the main event was declared and with the and admitting that there were a couple of incredible matches that our match did not approach uh, in terms of you know, being memorable, I thought Rock and I teaming up against Evolution was as important as anything else on that card. Yeah, it was big time. Uh, to the point where if you go back and you watch the Raw where Shawn Michaels is in the ring, they're actually chanting my name. Yes. The week before Rock returns. And when Rock returned in the venue outside of Atlanta and he came to the rescue, it was like, man, the table has been set. And this is a, this is a big time thing. Uh, I wonder why Rock didn't say anything. It was his first time back in a while. Uh, they put us on first, which in, should in no way diminish what your spot on the card is when it comes to payoffs. Um, but that's the one that I will argue we were as important as anything on that card by virtue of the reactions we were getting, Rock returning, uh, and what that was going to do for, for Randy and a very young Dave Batista too. Any more detail on what the hell happened with your house that burned down? Yeah, yeah. Um, man, I knew one of the uh, pilots who I'd met at the USO function. He said he was doing maneuvers, and he comes over, and it's, man, fire's shooting up into the air. He got back, and they said, you know, that was Mick Foley's house. So somebody, I think it was somebody was renting the house, and it was a stove fire or whatever the case might be. So we were, insurance did take care of it. There was uh, nothing suspicious about it. I mean, none I think, of your stuff was there. You well, most out. of my stuff was out. I mean, I may have lost some albums, but it was really sad because it was um, four of the best years of my life, you know, that we spent there. I just drove by there on my way to New Orleans. I stayed in uh, Navarre, Florida. And I drove by. Is that where it was, Navarre? Yeah, yeah Navarre, wow. yeah. That's where my parents were married. Uh, no kidding, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and I know you said that when people make the uh, vacation, they just head down straight for the Panhandle. Absolutely, yeah. So we loved it. I mean, when I moved there, I, I, I did take into consideration. Every once in a while, I remind my wife about the extra hours that were spent. But it's about three or four hours every week extra that you're spending. More like six hours because you drive... Three hours one day, three hours. And you add up six extra hours a week times 50 times four. Actually, about two and a half months of my life were spent on layovers or connecting flights. Uh, but that's, you know, that's where Colette wanted to live and I wanted to make her happy. And that's something I gladly did. Um, and if I had just, if I had realized that this commissioner job, was not my gig to have, then we probably would have never moved. Um, and the thinking at the time, we don't, I don't know. I'm just asking is if you live in the Northeast, you can just ride with Vince. So you're home every night. Not that I would ride with Vince. Um, but a lot of it had to do with me being the, so I was not the commissioner in the sense I didn't make up. Uh, I didn't make rulings. I had nothing to do with finances. But I was a commissioner in the sense that I was somebody who was one of the faces of the company. A centerpiece on the show. A centerpiece on the show. And they also brought me other places. At that time, they had their site-based entertainment complex, which the rest of us would call a restaurant. Yes. The WWE Times Square. And they were asking me on a very regular basis to come up to New York. 
So because I was on central time zone uh, from a small airport, in order to get to New York, I'd have to leave the night before and I'd be gone for, say, 36 hours. And when I lived, yeah, when I lived on Long Island, now it's a six hour. I'm gone for six hours. So I'm gaining over a full day. Yes. And at that time, there was such a premium on being a dad and wanting to see every single thing, you know, that I could. And knowing that we had a new child on the way, I wanted to be around, you know, I could make up my schedule. But also because of the popularity of WWE, and because I was the only one of those, you know, building block guys who was available on weekends, I was I was putting on as many miles, if not more, in that year that followed. Yeah. For good money, too. Uh, we talked a, a few weeks ago about my match with um, Triple H and how I was actually in Huntsville at a car show yeah. the night before, which I should not have been, right? I should have absolutely been at that hotel in New York. Uh, getting ready for, you know, the best send off possible. But there's still that feeling of having to make hay while the sun shines yeah. and you don't know how long it's going to be shining. So I was, I was going every which way, flying all over the country, doing a lot of work for WWE overseas as well. Did a promotional tour for them in Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, Singapore, uh, Malaysia. Indonesia. So I was out and about and I was, you know, it was a good time, but it was a lot, a lot of work went into being the commissioner. All right, Mick, it's time. All of our listeners have been wondering when I was going to get you uh, smartened up about this. Are you familiar with Blue Chew? I've heard of it. Well, now you're going to learn all about it. This is like a hot tag for your wiener, Mick. Okay. Are they going to use that in there? Yeah. Here's the deal, boys and girls. You know all about Blue Chew. Even Mick does. And and Mick is is a podcast rookie here, right? But yeah. you know this episode sponsored by Blue Chew. You knew that as soon as you clicked play and you saw my name. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but it's chewable tablets. And Mick, you'll love this at a fraction of the cost. Fraction of the cost, really. Now, I like that. Now, here's the real reason on that, Mick. They have. They are basically offering like almost the generic version. So it's the same stuff if you've used Viagra and Cialis, but now it's in chewable form, which means you can take it on an empty stomach. You can take it day or night. You can be ready whenever an opportunity arises, or maybe it's time for that elusive run-in. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, Just, that's boom. right. The Good hot to go. tag, come in, the house of fire. Yeah, working from underneath, going over. I mean, we can get it all in here. The process is simple, guys. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part, Mick. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And I know this is important to you, Mick. BlueChew's tablets are made right here in the USA. The good old red, white, and BlueChew. It's prepared and ship directly to your door all in a discreet package but Mr. Foley there won't be anything discreet about your package with Blue Chew so uh, boys and girls check this out if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform Blue Chew can help and we've got a special deal for our listeners try Blue Chew for free can you beat that price you can't beat it but you gotta have the disclaimer about side effects right side effects include smacking the mat 
Yes. Firing up into a fighting position and saying, come on, and rushing your hair. Come on, you son of a yuck. And if you're not careful, an accidental outpoke. I mean, you never know. You just never know. Come on, boys and girls. Try this out for free. You can't beat free. All you got to do is use our promo code Foley at checkout. Now, you will have to pay $5 shipping, but why would you not do that? Why Come on would now. Why would you not do it? It's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley. You receive your first month for free. Just visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring today's podcast and... Apparently, Mrs. Foley's baby's boy's baby boy. I don't know, but you're going home with some today, and I'm going to need to report back. I am a scientist. Okay. Uh, I can almost assure you that you are going to become my wife's least favorite person. Really? <laughs> by virtue of giving me You're going to be pestering her all the time? Um, possibly. Hey, here's what's good about you in particular. Uh, you had three bites at the apple at the Royal Rumble. Yeah. I mean, I think... If I'm thinking what you're thinking and you're thinking what I'm I thinking. I think I am thinking what I think you think I'm thinking. We start with, with Cactus Jack. Maybe we transition to Mankind. We finish with Dude Love or vice versa. Just switch it up. Just use promo code Foley at BlueChew.com. I want to mention uh, Randy Orton keeps this all alive uh, while you're not on TV, bringing you up in uh, in promos. Yep. And then you actually appeared on the short-lived WWE program Confidential. Um, and you disclosed in the interview that when you were written out in 2001 with Vince, there were some true feelings. I mean, you're sort of pulling the curtain back on a WWE program. Was that uncomfortable to do? Uh, I was not. I didn't feel uncomfortable because Vince kind of thrived uh, living on that edge. Yeah, he loved the borderline stuff, as Terry Funk would call it, to the point where when I decided to leave and they let me go um, a uh, a year early, uh, I, I remarked for those of you who have been listening for the entire the entirety of the show, and I know I do ramble, but that's what you like about me, right? Yeah, I'm a rambler. Uh, I, I called Jim and I said that, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that you guys could conclude the storyline. I'd do whatever you wanted to do over the next few weeks to bring it to a close. So they flew me into uh, Charlotte, picked me up in a limo, brought me to a private airport, put me on the plane just to fire me. And that's where I, I said something about, you know, Vince, you know, I'm part of the reason you own this this plane. You ought to name part of it for me. He goes, I know. How about the dude love toilet? And so I cut a promo where I said, you know what's amazing about you? You took a guy who loved this company, who would have done anything for it. And I can't remember what my conclusion was, but I was basically saying I hated this company. And I used to love it. And then I walked out. And as I'm walking out, I see Nature Boy Ric Flair get ready to come on. Whether he's coming on the plane or not, I don't know. But he is going to begin his first day back with the company yeah. in that authority figure role. So it was definitely a changing of the guard, but I'm glad that I, uh, I'm glad that I, I made that call volunteered to do what I could tie up the loose ends. And, uh, and I, I looked when I did the, made the same offer to TNA about tying up the loose ends. I just, no, no, that's good. Um, Vince, I, I like, I like that part of the business where you go, okay, maybe we're not getting along. 
Let's maybe take a break. I, yeah, let's take a break. Maybe I just said everything I felt in my heart. You said everything you felt in your heart about me. But we're going to shake hands. Thank you for the opportunity. And off I go. What a story. I'm sure we'll talk about it in more uh, detail. But I want to talk a little bit more about Tatum Brown. Uh, you wrote into The Observer about it. I've been reading with great interest as well as disappointment <laughs> regarding the updates of my book. I won't even try to pretend that I'm not disappointed in its sales, but I'm even more concerned about its negative portrayal in The Observer. Yes, reviews have been very mixed. Opinions seem to generally range from people who really liked it, like Paul Allen of BookPage, who called it highly energetic, breakneck paced, and witty, laugh-out-loud funny, and surprisingly addictive, entertaining, to people who like certain aspects of it, but overall found it too disturbing to truly enjoy. And... I don't know. It feels like you maybe felt a little betrayed by Meltzer here that maybe he could have been a little more complimentary since he's covering the biz. I mean, when you write a novel, it's the closest I think a guy can come to giving birth. Yeah. You conceive it, you create it, you give birth to it. And you release it into the world. And you release it. And it's like somebody telling you your child is ugly. And it really stings. I think more so than the, the memoir does. Um, and I had some great reviews, and it did very well in the UK. But that was largely because one of the reviewers on the BBC read it, liked it, reported on it, and that made it acceptable for everyone else to treat it seriously. So there was even like a roundtable discussion on national BBC with three three reviewers who really liked it, one who did not like it, but they covered it like it was a serious piece of literature. And I, I needed one of those reviews from one of those people. I needed a Kirkus reviews or a New York Times. And it was almost like, oh, I just felt it was almost I'm not the vast majority reviews were very fair. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like there was a Russian figure skating judge in there, uh, you know, like just specifically trying to bury it. And uh, uh, so I did look we're if people in the outside world, you know, we in the inside world, I think we accept inside the wrestling world. There's a little negative stigma about what we do. Of course, it's less than it was. But I think that there were people, especially uh, a lot of reviewers or writers whose books have not done well. And they see a guy who's had some success uh, with memoirs and now you're entering their world. And just a couple of them are going to make it really difficult to be accepted in your world. So a guy named Jeff Gwynn from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram said, I'll tell you what, Mick, if you get a really bad review, Google that person and see how many books they've sold. You're going to find, and it's so much easier as a writer to show off your chops by giving a negative review yes. than it is to say that something someone else wrote is good. So there were only a couple of those people, but uh, they were, were. I didn't get the break in the U.S. that I needed in the U.K., and that stuff did it did hurt my feelings. You know, it would be like I remember going to a American Library Association, and uh, I'm there as their keynote speaker. I've had the two, you know, the two uh, memoirs have done really well. Two children's books have hit the New York Times bestseller list. I sit down and one of the ladies has to let me know about the bad review I just received. Mm. And it's like, why do you do, you know, I now I know better than to do that. And I've had enough wrestling criticism. So it kind of rolls off my back. Yeah. Uh, And why I felt like I needed to write into the observer 
Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I probably got it three or four times, maybe four or five times. That's pre-social over, media. Yeah, know, over the years. That 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 hardened us all a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. mute it and move on. <laughs> so you you do this press tour that even continues to off the record, and you're here to promote the book, but you wind up talking a lot about Hulk Hogan taking shots at your body. Oh, and man. this is a PR tour, but, yeah. boy, it feels like we struck a nerve. Um Take us back. Why were you upset with Hogan? Yeah, that was Michael Landsberg, right? Yeah. And it was one thing to see the words, because I had read the words, you know. And I, look, I, I get along good with Hulk, right? And I know he's had his, uh, you know, very... Uh, ups and downs. Public ups and downs. Uh, and I think he's a good person who's said a few things that obviously... Incredible. Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking about the, the, the racial stuff, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, we've had discussions and, you know, he thinks he's alone. I, look, I've been around groups of guys and when there's bunch of white guys together and they think they're safe you're gonna you start hearing a little of that unfortunate language so I think there's more of it than any just I understand that good people can say bad things yes it's my uh, I, I think Hulkster's a good good guy who's done a lot to help people and even when I didn't like him I would always go back to Shane Douglas telling me about his first run in WWE and how the Make-A-Wish kids would be around Hogan. He said these kids would just be beaming. And so whatever else anyone thinks about Hulk, I as long as he's the guy that brought joy into the hearts, and we're not talking about a few people, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of children, maybe not John Cena levels, but here's a guy, he, he brought a lot of joy into people's yeah. lives. And I always respect him for that. Uh, so my thought, my feeling is, that Hulk was promoting his book, which is doing a fraction of what my book is doing. Correct. And it's probably been brought up to him, and he's probably at a breaking point. And he takes it out on me. And the, the uh, you know, Michael Landsberg was basically saying, why do you figure you're still in it? And a guy like Mick Foley, so much younger than you, is already out. And Hulk could have answered any number of ways. He could have said, well, if you've seen the stuff that Mick does, it's a wonder he's still... He could have taken that in a positive direction. And instead, he said he'd worked out more this week than I had in the last five years. And he said something about the early bird gets gets the worm or something like that. It didn't seem to make any sense. And you could see it hurt me because I wasn't a Hulkamaniac, but I understood he was one of the biggest stars yeah. in the history of our business. And he's got this... First of all, I did work out hard. You know, I remember Frank Dusick telling me when I was in world class, he said, the knock on you is that you don't work out. What I heard is that you work out hard and you work out smart. You just don't have any genetics. I said, That's exactly the case. You know, I was all up on the lingo. I knew about supersetting. I knew about rest pause. I knew about Mike Menser's heavy duty pre-exhaustion techniques. And I tried them all. And there's very little difference in the way I looked when I was working out as hard as I possibly could. And, uh, you know, when I came back for my comeback matches and basically had given up with lifting weights and was doing just all cardio, which included the the hand, uh, not a treadmill, like a bike for your hand, you know. So you're hitting all those muscles. And even when I came back and I dropped a ton of weight in 2016, it was... DDP yoga and uh, and swimming and doing uh, aerobics in the pool, 
that helped me out. So there was very little difference between me working out hard, getting the 30 grams of protein every two weeks and me not working out and eating junk food, you know? So I just never had that genetic hand. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, those words, yeah, they stung, man. I was, I was really open to, uh, uh, I was, a criticism hurt me back then in a way that it no longer does. You have a, a crazy experience here. You get to host Jimmy Kimmel show for a week. Like, I don't think anybody talks about that the way they should. That's a big damn deal, man. Because Jimmy started out with the co-hosts. The weekly co-host was going to make his show different. Uh, the other thing made Jimmy different is they had an open bar backstage. And they I wouldn't say they encouraged, but they didn't deter people. And I've got very little... Uh, um, Tolerance. Tolerance. So that two drinks, boom, two drinks, and I'm flying noticeably, and I'm ready. I have the two quick shots. Now I'm ready for my name, and I'm thinking, I'm effing hammered. I'm going to go out on national TV, and I'm effing hammered. Uh, but I went out there, and Jimmy and I clicked. They loved the fact that I would be willing to go on eight-hour <laughs> remote shoots to do the one- or two-minute videos. So I did some stuff with Andy Melanakis, uh, where I took him to toughen him up, you know, and it was so much fun to be out there. It was almost like being on a wrestling shoot, you yeah. know? So they're substituting the name of some bar. They're going to put in graphics, all American bar. And I send Andy in with a shirt that says, I heart Sodom, you know? <laughs> and when he comes out, I said, is there some way we can make it look like he's just lost some teeth? And like, what do you think? Chicklets, you know, chicklets. So he comes out and I've got a huge ice cream cone at Nashta Malone's. Anyone who's ever around, around that area, L.A. knows they serve like rosewater ice cream. They've got like 77 different varieties. Andy Melanakis gets kicked out of the uh, All-American bar and he spits out the chiclets and it looks like teeth, which makes me feel good. Yeah. So I just I thoroughly enjoyed myself on that show. Um, I, I, I like the idea of interacting. Can I tell you, this is a good to me. This is my favorite story from that period. I would read up on it, uh, but I also know my I, I know it's Jimmy's show. I had seen what Mr. T had done a couple weeks earlier. I was like, all right, that's exactly what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to try to overshadow Jimmy. I'm not going to butt in too much. I'm there, you know, to help enhance him. You know, at the same time, he's very giving as a host. He's going to get me over as well. So Steve Miller is on, the legendary singer, guitarist. Um, and Steve was my absolute number one from the time I was like 13 to 15. And he's having a little interview with Jimmy and I'm you know, coming in. And I, Jimmy, is there any truth to the rumor that you were think, considering of managing a band with my former tag team partner, Max Payne? And at that point, the entire interview <laughs> stops and Steve focuses in on this story and he tells it so wonderfully. He goes, yeah, he goes, I'm sitting at home and I get a knock on the door and I look out. And there's Max Payne, and Max about six foot six and four hundred pounds. And next to him is a guy named Dr. Squash, who's six foot four and probably three fifty. He's got this mohawk. And they keep saying to me, Brother, brother, we got an album. We want you to listen to my album, brother, brother. And he says, All right, I'll tell you what, you can come in the house, but you have to stop calling me brother. 
And he said, they give him the, the tape. And he says, some weeks go by. And he, he looks at it and goes, and I wonder. And I said, and, and, and I'm getting ready for Steve to get the pop by burying the guys. And he goes, it's like the album Pink Floyd should have made, but never did. And I was so proud of that interview. I yeah. get to interview my, you know, one of my heroes and he likes me. And then I felt like I had a say in that conversation. So that was super cool. That, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I was getting to do a lot of fun stuff. And they later did away with the um, guest host. And when I saw uh, Jimmy backstage, when a uh, Ro- Ro- Rowdy Roddy slapped the tar out of Cousin Sal, Roddy was in that phase where he was slapping people for like two years. He would just come out, boom, and no Iggy that is coming. It's, Boom, and a good slap make you feel like you're, you know, you're having your jaw broken. And um, Jimmy was with Sarah Silverman at the time. And Sarah had visited the set, I think, two or three days, and she was super nice. Uh, and Jimmy said, what happened with the co-hosts is that it made it difficult to book guests because not every host was going to approach it the way that I did. Yeah. And he said it became difficult to book guests, you know, who may or may not have good interplay with a co-host. But yeah. I loved it. I was I had a great hotel on the Sunset Strip for a week and it felt like I was going to my place of business. That's know? cool, man. So, yeah, it was a good experience. Uh, so then Team Bischoff, back in the wrestling land, is going to defeat Team Austin at Survivor Series. Austin is now removed as the GM of Raw. And, of course, this sets the stage for your return. Dave would write, Mick Foley returned to Raw and pretty much dominated the show on December 1st in Sacramento in a deal that was finalized just a few days before airtime. Foley will be on every show as co-general manager for the next several weeks, building up to the Austin return, maybe even longer the plans are he will probably appear on and off as full time as the full time gig ends through March, building to a mania angle. Foley had pitched ideas for a return for a while, and this idea came up about a week before his return and wasn't finalized until midweek. Foley's been doing some speaking at colleges and has hinted about wrestling Triple H at Mania. Apparently, he'd done that because he had heard all the rumors and thought that there was something to them. <laughs> the subject came up at Raw, and he was told they have different ideas for Triple H at Mania. And the last we heard, it was the Randy Orton angle, but I've heard other ideas that Triple H has pitched as well. While nothing is concrete, there's a good chance they'll build to an angle for Foley to come out of retirement for a match at the show. Foley's working on a TV project, the details of which were released the same day as his return in Variety. In its first attempt at a TV series by the new WWE Films Company, headed by Joel Simon, that a pilot has been ordered. Foley and... uh, the writer of The Dead Zone have been contracted by CBS to do a pilot where Foley would play a detective in the Tampa Bay Police Department <laughs> who gets as down and dirty as the criminals he's going after. The show is more of a drama, but Foley's lead character will have comedic overtones. This is the third year in a row that Foley's been a part of a pitch for a TV series. It's true. Back in 01, he was to be the lead in a comedy written by Barry Blaustein for ABC for a show about a retired wrestler adjusting to a new life. ABC changed the head of its comedy division, and the network lost interest. Yeah. He would also pitch last year, which didn't get great interest from any of the networks. Vincent and Stephanie McMahon are behind this third project and approached Foley with the idea. So lots to unpack there, as I like to say. But mm-hmm. talk to me about you working on uh, 
this idea that you're going to be a Tampa Bay Police Department. <laughs> Bad. Uh, I used to joke with Barry Bloom about I was taking my annual Southern California vacation where every year for like four, maybe four or five years, but at least minimum three, where I would get called uh, unsolicited. Uh, Barry would call me and tell me a major producer, people with a track with track records, had an idea with me as the lead. And so this wasn't me pitching ideas. This was me going to listen to a pitch and then going to the the networks. How much of that do you attribute to wrestling? How much was Jimmy Kimmel and Today Show? And man, I guess I I struck. I guess I struck some people in Hollywood as a guy who had potential. In 2001, I mean, I really, I thought about, my wife and I went to Southern California. We were looking at perhaps buying a home because I thought I could be a decent character actor. I thought I was somebody who could work regularly because I was coming off a good run. I had a name and I thought I had some, uh, you know, theatrical skill. And I think if people go back and they look at the little bits and pieces I did, that I was pretty good in some of those things. I never saw myself being a star and I really was surprised that every year somebody felt like I was that star. But I thought, man, I'd be foolish to not go out and investigate. So I would hear their pitch. They would convert me into a believer in the project. And then I was very good at pitching in rooms. So when I would go and I would meet the heads of networks for three or four, maybe five years running, uh, we would make a vary of varying degrees of success. In the one case, we had an offer for a script when we got into the parking lot, wow. which is like uh, insane. And then, like uh, you said, there was a turnover uh, and the new person probably heard there was a wrestling project and, and it didn't want that. Yeah. Uh, 2000, uh, another one, we went to uh, pitch the idea for a scripted show and was asked by A&E if we wanted to do a reality show. And uh, that turned out to be uh, Wrestling My Family, which made it to pilot. We all felt like it was going really good. When I was asked about doing a, uh, a reality show, I said, now, the only thing you had to gauge it on was the Osbournes, right. the Anna Nicole Smith show, and I think the Newlyweds. And I said, well, we don't really yell or fight in our family. And I don't, I don't curse at all, right? Just the, the one F-bomb on my, uh, on, on my shows, right? How many times has DDP dropped an F-bomb? At this juncture, he uses it like a comma. Right, so exactly. We'd be 40 yeah. deep by this Yeah, point. 40 deep, and Jake's chipping in, right? Using yeah. his, um, uh, my, like a comma as well. Uh, and they said, the guy looked at me and says, We think that's passe. We are ready for a new type of family on TV. So after two days of shooting, wrestling my family, uh, Marcus was, I think Marcus Smith was the name of the guy who had, was a showrunner, which is a director for the Osbournes. And the and the Anna Nicole Smith says their only fear is there's not enough friction in the family. And I was like, but they said they didn't want that. And I later commiserated with uh, D. Snyder about this as well, uh, where he had had a pilot. Same thing. He said they said there's not a friction. You're like, there is friction. It's just a little more subtle. So that if you notice, then D, when he finally did have Growing Up Twisted, they would begin the show with a major conflict. Yeah. Like, you have to have There's that. a formula. Right. And at that time, almost everything we did was completely organic. Of course, they're putting you in situations, but everything you say and how you deal with it is completely organic. 
we really thought we had a winner on our hands. And then when they came back to do some reshoots, it was like, okay, this is what we want you to do. This is how we want you to react. And it lost a little bit of that. Eventually, they passed on it. But we had a great time doing it. We really did. Uh, to have the family together for a couple of weeks, as, as would be the situation in Holy Foley. We loved doing that show. This time we were together longer, 10 weeks. We, you know, it was a nice, we were compensated nicely for doing it. But going back to what you're saying, I had a lot going on. Yeah. And I didn't say no because you never knew. But at the end of four years with some really good ideas, with some really good people, I said to Barry, I said, Barry, I don't want to star in a show. Can't you just find me a show that needs a wacky neighbor and let me be on like, you know, let me be that guy who's on, you know, looking over his fence, waving every three episodes. So I never felt like I was never the guy that a company was built around in wrestling. I didn't see why I would be a guy that a show was built around in uh, on television. So creatively, when when you had been doing these speaking tours and saying, oh, maybe it's Hunter at Mania. And is this the timeline where you visit with Vince and pitch winning the Rumble? Right before you come back in December, you know, when they're yeah. saying, hey, fine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so late November is when that would have happened in theory? Um, yeah, probably. Probably because Rumble was coming up and I wanted to win that. Uh, I, I want to ask, I don't mean to cut you off, but when you laid the pitch out earlier of, hey, I want to come back at the Rumble yeah. and I want to win it and then I want to unify the titles yeah. and I want to win that. Were you saying that sincerely, or did you say, I know he's going to say no to something. No, I, I thought he might so, go for it. Yeah, okay. I thought I could be a... I just uh, know sometimes the idea is, let me throw something out. I know he'll say no, yeah. and then I'll, it'll be easier to say yes to the next time. I thought he would say no, which is why I had the plan B right. lined up. But what I wasn't counting on was just how little time it took him to decide, <laughs> to decide he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. He wasn't, he wasn't like, well, let me take some time to think that over there. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever, no interest whatsoever in doing that. And I went, okay, got a plan for Randy Orton. It is interesting to think, you know, what that might have looked like. You know, we wouldn't have got the Chris Benoit moment, uh, but I think Eddie Guerrero was champ. Yeah. So it would have been you and Eddie, and I guess Hunter. No, no, because I would have unified it. It would have been me. Yeah, out just there you with at confetti the end. coming down. Yeah, of course. At the garden. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So you're going to be here building up the uh, the Austin return as the co-general manager. Um, but the idea that you're going to play this detective for the Tampa Bay Police Department, Meltzer sort of gives credit in saying that Stephanie and Vince brought it to you. So did, did a TV company or production house approach them with the idea? No, at the same time, in the same time frame, Vince approached me about playing a role in Animorphs uh, with Willem Dafoe and wanted me to be the lead heel. And I didn't think I could credibly be a guy who disappears into a crowd. Um, and so I ended up playing a much smaller role. I do not remember Vince and Stephanie pitching a TV show to me. I do remember Vince pitching, uh, you know, his uh, daughter-in-law, Marissa, was producing uh, Animorphs. And so I did go in. I had fun. Had a you know, great rapport with Willem Dafoe, had a cool, memorable lunch with him, uh, and got to see him act, which was so interesting because uh, we're used to those larger-than-life facial expressions, you know, that I'm used to Mr. McMahon displaying fear by going, 
you know the he's the, so the, nuanced the, uh, the by big gul- yeah big gulp of fear and now I'm watching Willem Dafoe. Uh, I'm watching 20 takes of a guy who doesn't appear to be doing anything in the scene. And then when you see it on playback, he's got these all these little nuances and subtleties that show up on the screen. And so it was like just getting paid to do an act, you know, to go to acting school. It was it was fun. Well, you said you had a memorable lunch with him. What was memorable? What was memorable about it was, hey, he, he wasn't a guy that stayed in character. Uh, I remember uh, saying to him, I was like, all right, I'm not going in to ask this guy about being the Green Goblin. And I said, uh, Willem, do you mind if I ask you about a role? He went, oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I said, um, how much tr- did you have to get into character? Like, was that difficult to get into character for Shadow of the Vampire? Shadow of the Vampire is this great movie, but not a widely seen movie. And he started talking to me about that. And he'd also played a boxer in Auschwitz. Um, in a movie. So I asked him about the training uh, for that. And he was very open to discussing it. WWE shows up with their film crew to do an interview with me and Willem. And they asked me what my favorite Willem Dafoe role is. I said, I I think when he played uh, Sergeant Elias in Platoon, I said that relationship with he and uh, uh, Tom Berenger's Sergeant Barnes, I said, one of the great rivalries in cinematic history, I said, the point where uh, uh, Sergeant Elias gets shot and the way he goes down, I said, he opens up his arms. I said, I think the little biblical reference yeah. in there. And I think I see in the background, Willem Dafoe go like, like, well, like he didn't know, you know, he was impressed by my knowledge. So when we sat down for lunch, it was me, Willem and another and a lady who played a, a, an extra who uh, came from a theater background and we got off on uh, t- talking about uh, Last Tango in Paris. Oh, wow. And so I asked Willem, I said, did, did Brando just have such clout that he could do anything he wanted? And then Defoe starts doing uh, dialogue from Last Tango in Paris, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Yes. You know, and there's, if you, you know, if you super just, controversial, super at the controversial time. at the time. I remember my parents talking to their friends, the Meekers. And uh, I, uh, Harry said, uh, Harry Meeker said, guess what movie we went to see? And my mother went, Last Tango in Paris. No, you didn't. You know, and they were joking around about the stick of butter, which yes. I later found out later. But the, there's pig noises and a pig farting and somehow it's supposed to be sexy. And so he was doing this dead on Brando. And he was just, he was just a super cool guy who didn't give off any air like he was bad. He didn't have his own dressing room. He did have a trailer he could have retreated to, but he ate lunch with us. I did 20 takes with one of the best actors in the world. Wow. And I went my way. All right, boys and girls, you know what time it is. It's time for me to tell you about chili sleep. And I was just telling Mick about it. And, and here's the thing about this, Mick. Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. And you've lived in the South. Mm-hmm. you got to have a ceiling fan in your bedroom. It's like we're required by law down here. Yes. Uh, well, here's the reason. Temperature-controlled sleep is going to repair your muscles after a hard day's work. It's going to improve your cognitive function so you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And that's been 
in my experience. I have a chilly sleep. I've got the Uller system. I've had it for over a year now. It's changed my life. What I've got now is a customizable climate controlled sleep solution that improves my entire well being. Now they make the Uller. You can also check out the Cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro powered mattress. Toppers, right? It's temperature controlled. It fits over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. Let me explain, Mick. My wife likes to sleep a little warmer. Right. So her side, she wants to be at like 75. I like to sleep a little cooler. I want to be at like 67. Yeah. I get a perfect night's sleep at that. But before I had chilly sleep, Mick, I'm cranking down the AC. I'm flipping the pillow. Now I'm paying to heat my laundry room. I, I don't need my laundry room to be cooler. I need my bed to be cooler. Chilly sleep has made that happen. This is perfect for you to get that deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. Chilly sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Real quick, listen to this now. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili Sleep can make that happen. They've made it happen for me. Prior to Chili Sleep, Mick, I was sleeping like five, six hours a night. With Chili Sleep, I'm seven, eight, nine. I even slept 10 hours once with Chili Sleep. It's unbelievable to wake up and not feel tired. Sounds incredible because I'm the same way. My wife likes it hotter. Mm-hmm. I like it cooler. Mm-hmm. I lose out. Of course. I lose that argument. I'm a guy. It's what we do. Yep. And uh, a guy in a successful marriage has to learn to admit he's wrong, even when he knows in his heart he's not every Co- once in a while. Correct. to learn to uh, make the uh, thermostat the wife's realm. But now we get our say. Well, yeah, man. And, and here's the thing, too. You don't want to wake up all hot and sweaty. You're not going to get a good night's sleep. You're going to get up and pee. You're going to be fighting with the covers. N- none of that anymore. So head on over to chillysleep.com forward slash Foley. To learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system, this offer is available exclusively for Mick Foley listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discount. Wake up refreshed every day. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender, savewithconrad.com. And now here you are, back on Monday Night Raw, December 1st, 2003. You're going to fire Test, Scott Steiner, and La Resistance. Of course, uh, you're firing heels. Uh, the show ends with you putting Mr. Socko down Eric Bischoff's throat, and maybe there's a little personal satisfaction on that. Uh, Why I think not? there was. Uh, the next week on Raw, The Rock returns in Anaheim to save you from the two-on-one beatdown from La Resistance. Uh, oh, from, wow, I don't remember that. I thought yeah, you the, thought maybe just outside of Atlanta. I thought the only time The Rock came back was to set up the Mania match, and I thought it was outside Georgia. I don't remember him coming back against the La Resistance. Um, when do you know that The Rock is is officially figured in? Is it? I know you told us about the phone call yeah. from Brian, but. That doesn't happen in the initial sit down with you, Vince, and Jr. No, because I wouldn't. I would have thought that's too ludicrous to propose. The Rock's going to come back to be my partner in Mania. That it doesn't sound like something I thought would be feasible on the table. 
So once we knew Rock was coming back, we begin setting that table by putting me through, I might be jumping ahead here, but when it gets to me actually being on the show, being on Raw regularly, I start taking a pretty serious beating every every time I go out there. You know, I'm being put through a, a table, a power bomb by Batista, getting slapped in the face where it has to look good by Randy. You know, I was taking my lumps. I know I'm forwarding ahead to the uh, showdown for the singles match, but... You know, when I pulled him aside, I think we were in um, in California. Uh, Baker, I think we were in Bakersfield, and I went up to Randy and I said, "Hey, sometimes in this business, you make your own breaks." He goes, "What do you mean?" I said, uh, "I want you to go out there. I want you to open up this eyebrow. I said, Just gotta." I give him a quick tutorial, thinking he's got it in his DNA, like the Fullers did or the Funks did. And then Randy, you know, basically, basically, they're not a drop of blood. It doesn't, it's not the downward thing, but he puts a bunch of swelling up under my eye, uh, which doesn't necessarily look that great on camera. It does, it's disturbing because, I mean, I was going out, you know, I'm getting hit, 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 and eventually I think powerbombed and not a drop of blood. But within about three days now, all that internal bleeding starts mm. sinking down and gives me the worst, worst uh, black eye I've ever had. And I've had some pretty good ones. So I say that this needs to be documented. And I asked to come into Stanford to be interviewed. And I am interviewed by Jonathan Coachman. And uh, I'm surprised when Brian Gewertz calls me and says, Vince wants you to come back and do the interview over. He said it's the worst work of your career. <laughs> the interview I did with Coachman. So I joked and said, hey, if he'd said it was the worst work of Coachman's career, that would really be saying something, right? Yeah. So Coach was more caught up in a, being a, in a heel persona. He wasn't... He, Playing the straight man yeah, in that he wa- Yeah, he was... Yeah, it wasn't doing anything for the, uh, for the angle. So they flew Jim Ross in to interview me and that made a big difference but that's one of those things where you know on paper the idea of bringing somebody back another three hour round trip another two hours in the bill that's a lot you know a lot of extra work we've already yeah. got something in the can surely you could edit it but he felt strongly like it was bad that it was going to hurt the angle and asked if i would do it over again and i did it gladly so how excited are you to uh to see Dwayne, you know, when he, when he makes his return, I'm sure you get to spend some time with him before you get going. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a weird thing to say, but he's gone on to become the biggest star in the world. Right. Maybe he wasn't quite at that point, but, but you just could tell. Done, yeah, he'd done the game plan. Uh, you know, he was game plan, I think, was his biggest one at that time. He was clearly an A-lister and, uh, you know, soon to be the biggest star in the world. What had changed from Dewey, who you met back yeah, in the yeah, day, yeah. to now he really is a yeah, big star. Right. And so to have him on my side, kind of like being my knight in shining armor, uh, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. We were afraid that people would know he was going to be there. So I think Evolution even alluded to it. Uh, where's Mr. Hollywood? And I was like... I think the way we did it, it was like they're bullying me, right? There's three of them. You know, why don't you go out there and make a phone call to your friend in Hollywood? 
And then I go, okay, I'm going to do that. And I almost over-exaggerate it. Like, I'm going to go run up there and you know, use the payphone. And I turn around and I said, you know, better than me calling him, why don't I introduce you to him now? And here comes Dwayne Johnson running down the ramp. Uh, and I think, you know, Conrad, I think he was so busy kicking butt that he forgot to take names that day. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how fully caught up in kicking butt he was that day before we get into 2004 at armageddon you're the special guest referee for randy orton and rob van dam for the intercontinental title and there's a promo you cut before the match you're wearing a suit and tie whose idea was that that was not very foley-esque no you know uh this this is 2004 the very end of 2003 very end of 2003 okay i thought i i didn't think i returned after randy uh Oh, we haven't oh, done that yet. Okay, at we this have, point in the story. So, anyway, we'll, we'll keep rolling here. You're trying well, to the get suit, a, uh, but at that time, I knew the company. You know, I had that grace period where I was allowed to wear everything I wanted, anything I wanted. They thought it felt the character. This is dress code era. Dress code era. Yeah. So it was like there were three guys that didn't have to adhere to the dress code: Undertaker, Cena, and me. Uh, and then when I get talked to about now I have to adhere to it. Now it feels like a big part of me has been taken away. Yeah. You know, I feel like the guy whose uh, whose wife is using his uh, <laughs> his body wash. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, it, it served its purpose here because they're trying to um, you're trying to get this petition signed for Austin to return, and Orton yeah. and Flair are going to interrupt you. And since Orton's gotten the winning pin at Survivor Series over Michaels, you want the stipulation to be upheld. And they threaten you, and you respond by taking off your suit and tie, and what do you know? You've got a referee shirt on Oh, I see. I, I completely forgot about that. So the suit and tie uh, worked in that sense, right? Yeah. Okay. They go 18 minutes. You stop Flair from interfering, but Orton still gets the win. Uh, he is now going to use the RKO to become the Intercontinental Champion. And on December 15th, uh, one of the oddest endings of a Monday Night Raw happens in Tampa, Meltzer would write, after spending nearly two hours building up Mick Foley's in-ring return against Randy Orton, uh, we saw Foley just walk out of the building. The idea, said to be Foley's idea that he suggested, was done with the idea of getting people talking since wrestling hasn't done a lot of real cliffhanger endings. Early in the show, Bischoff presented Foley with the idea of a match against Orton, where if Foley won, Bischoff would leave Raw. But if Orton won, Foley would leave. So this is where... All right, you all did right. the walkout. Okay. And I forgot that the uh that Eric and I were splitting the GM yeah. position. This is all it's all coming back to me now. This is when you get the spit in your face. Yep. And the show even ends five or six minutes earlier than normal. And Meltzer would say the feeling watching was empty. As the match was so heavily hyped during the show, it made no sense to do Foley's first match back on Raw. To a two to a TV viewer it came off like something out of nitro creativity. I disagree with that. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think you're telling a story as opposed to not delivering the main event. Right. Yeah. I think where we're going is so much bigger. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think uh, Dave would probably tell you that uh, he uh, prejudged that one um, because it went on to be everything I hoped it would be. So then Orton kicks off the next episode of Raw, uh, but he's coming out to your music, and he's calling himself the new hardcore legend. 
this is pretty good stuff. Yeah. I assume you're involved in all this creative as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, once I'm gone, they've got the uh, the outline. They're not consulting me on a weekly basis, or maybe they are, but I'm not writing the stuff. But they know where I, where I want to go, and Randy's really sinking his teeth into it, which is good. The January 12th show is at the Nassau Coliseum, your backyard. It's promoted. You're going to be there. Um, Randy Orton reserves a ringside seat for you. He sends a limo for you. Even JR is talking about how you're 15 minutes from your house. Yeah. Uh, It's the exact opposite of every storyline where you don't show up. But this is not normal for wrestling, but pretty creative. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first of all, I live about 30 minutes from there. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. 15 sounds good. And they had a monstrous uh, indie wrestler sitting in that chair. You know, it wasn't just like a... It, you know, it just it looks strange. This guy's bigger than all but a few guys in our dressing room. Right. Uh, reserving that seat for me. But again, I, I like that buildup, you know. Was, we're not baiting and switching. We're no. building to something bigger. Yes. Uh, Meltzer would write, but regarding Foley, the feeling among those who know the story and where it's going is that nobody in, nobody in wrestling would be able to do this story without burying themselves but Foley. As mentioned before, this is a story Foley brought to Vince, and most, if not all, of the layout and the timing is his. One of the key parts of the story is to make Orton, which the company needs, and really Foley and Rock need as well, because if people don't see Orton as a top guy, their return at Mania won't mean as much. The Orton Foley vignettes on television have been tremendous. And Vince has a lot of confidence in you to let you do this, does mm-hmm. he not? Yeah. Uh, especially going back to the idea of leaving people hanging and not providing a match. What if we'd done a match? Would anybody, it's a one week and it's uh, done. Yeah, one week and it's done. And it just becomes another thing. And instead. One of 52 raw matches. Yeah, yeah. And instead it becomes something. Special. Special, yeah. So Steve Austin cuts a promo on Raw uh, demanding you show up at the Rumble and not to be a coward. And then, of course, the Rumble begins. Randy Orton is, of course, number one. And Dave would write, Test was supposed to be in next, but we went backstage and Test was laid out. Austin is mad and told the guy who did it to get in the ring to take his place. And it was Foley who brought the house down. Pretty nice little twist right there. Nice little twist and a nice payoff. And, you know, to where I, in my head, people understand. In my, in my mind, when I laid this angle out, people will understand. I've got a lot of goodwill accrued. They will forgive me and they will uh, empathize with me. In Vince's mind, they're never going to forgive a guy who um, has shown uh, a cowardice. It's not... It, he gave me the forum to prove him wrong, and I did. And to his credit, he likes to be proven wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Not all the time. Sure. But that's what makes it uh, gratifying is that you can't prove him wrong all the time and that he is right a lot of the time. But in this case, he was wrong, and he gave me the forum to prove it. Um. Do you remember that pop that night? Could oh, you yeah. tell, like, just coming out, like, boy, we did it. This is special. You know how I would describe it? Road Warrior-esque. <laughs> it was a Road Warrior-esque type of pop. This is the first time, you know, don't get me wrong, you did the physicality with being thrown down the stairs, but the first time you're really doing your thing inside those ropes again. Um, 
I'm not a wrestler, never going to pretend to know what that is to be like, but I've talked to enough who say, you know, when you're doing it all the time, you almost develop a callus to it. Yeah. But then when you, you take a little bit of a break, it's almost harder on your body because you're not used to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're doing it every night, you, your body doesn't ever really uh, feel it the way it does if you do it once every so often, if that makes sense. Will that be fair? Yeah, I still think that uh, takes away from the sacrifices made by the men and women who go out there and do it all the time. Um, but I, I guess it would be somewhat akin to a, a marathoner in training running a marathon as opposed to someone who has not run a marathon in four years attempting to go out there and do it. No matter how much work they put into it, it's going to be really, really difficult. That person is going to be exceedingly sore the next day. Uh, I probably should come up with a different scenario, but it's different than anything you've done. And it does the same bruise. Besides, keep in mind, now for four years, I haven't taken the pounding that I have. Right. So I had been used to, especially in my career, was a lot of stuff was, I thought, high impact as opposed to high risk, even though there were, you know, as I said in my live show that you were at a while back, there were a couple dozen times during the course of that career where I threw caution to the wind and just hoped for the best. Mm-hmm. But I was taking a pounding, whether it's a cactus clothesline, and I'm stopping my momentum by hitting my thighs hard on the ring apron. Or running so, into the steps. Yeah, or- running into the steps. So... I'm taking a pounding. I'm used to taking a pounding so that when I come back, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole different level of suffering that you carry around. Like I said, that when I was thrown down the stairs, I'm talking six to eight weeks of really intense pain, you know. And in WCW, that would have been a Wednesday. Probably. Yeah. 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 So now that you're back and you find yourself, I'm sure when you're out there, there's the adrenaline. And you mentioned earlier that you blew up very quickly, but you've got this adrenaline dump afterwards. And then life starts to set in. Oh, I feel it here or there. A little flaking on my Marv shirt here. (laughs) Tell me that. Did did you worry about? That's a sweet Talk about a guy who could take some punishment, right? That fellow there, he's the original mankind. He's got the iron imprint on his head and just kept going. He's in it to win it. Unstoppable. He could have been a part of the slaughterhouse. (laughs) Uh, Marv, if you're listening, wear knee pads. Uh, So when you're... By the way, I am going to have my son Mickey come on one of these episodes just to do his imitation of Marv being electrocuted in... Oh, we got to see that. <laughs> we got to see that. Uh, One of the greatest sales in cinema history. Tremendous. And he also does Marv anticipating the next brick being thrown off where he's trying to warn Harry. And he's... He, my son, Mickey, he's on the autism spectrum. And I'm very... I'm so proud of him. He's a wonderful young man, a great guitarist and drummer. But he's a really good mimic. And so I'll wow. bring him on to do Marv being Can't electrocuted. Wait. I think you'll love it. Are you second guessing your, you know, you talked about being around it a little bit and seeing it up close to hell in a cell. You got the bug again. After you do the rumble, uh, you got to be exhausted. You got to be a little sore. Uh, do you still have the itch just as bad? Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those great feelings where, the long distance drive, the late night drive becomes the best possible breeding ground for ideas. So uh, the, the promos are coming to me. Uh, I start getting ideas for what I want to do in, uh, in the match. 
Uh, but again, this is different than a singles match because now there's uh, five guys. Uh, Randy and Dave are relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've made a pretty big imprint, you know, on the sport, fabric of the sport. And then you have Rock and Rick, who are, uh, you know, two of the most popular wrestlers of all time. And so it's not necessarily going to be my vision for WrestleMania as it would be a month later. The next night on Raw, you cut a tremendous promo that fans should go out of their way to see. And you talked about how when you were young in your career, you had to come up with these horrible things and channel them to be violent in wrestling. And you talked about Pete Rose. And eventually, Randy Orton is going to become involved here. Um Take us through your memory of that night where we get the big spit and you fire back with the chair and evolutions here. And this is a masterful promo that Dave Meltzer even says, not only every wrestler, but every boxer and MMA fighter in the U.S. should get a tape of this. You can't duplicate it, but the passion and where he got the audience at the end is where you want the audience to be when you're trying to cut a money promo. Now, is this Hershey PA after he hocks the second loogie on me? This is the second loogie. Yeah, that was a Hershey PA. That was a really powerful night, um, partially because um, I had a, a friend with me. His name was Marcos, who I later wrote a chapter about. Um, and I, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you just back for yeah. uh, you know, um a phone call I received from the Marty Lyons Foundation. I think it was Marty himself. Marty was a great New York Jet, part of the SAC Exchange. And Marty Lyons Foundation is similar to Make-A-Wish, but where they're different is they grant second wishes. So somebody who maybe is batting, uh, battling a long-time illness, he gets their wish to go to Disney at age seven, still struggling a few years later, a smaller group like Marty's can come in and make those wishes come true. So I get a call about a fan um, in central Pennsylvania and, uh, and wondering if I might be able to visit with him. So I, I look at the schedule. I said, Hey, we're going to be in Penn state in two weeks. And then there's silence on the line. And I said, is he not expected to make it two weeks? And they said, this is a day by day thing. And I said, uh, I can, uh, I can be there tomorrow. Right. It's about a three hour drive. I remember they put his mom on the phone, Rachel, and uh, they said, yeah, Mick would like to come by your house. And she says, he wants to visit my boy. And she broke down in tears, which made I welled up. And uh, I, I was there, whether it was the next day or two days later, and I'd probably been in that young man's living room three times by the time we got to uh, Penn State, and he was still hanging in there. Um and I remember he was the first gentleman I ever so had a smart TV that he could get videos that you paid for. And he, not that he was paying for this, but he pulled up my Kane Dewey promo. Mm-hmm. And so by this time, I'd been in their house three different times, spent most of the day watching wrestling and movies with this, this great young man. Uh, and the mom has one of the great comments I've ever heard. She watches the promo. She looks at me and says, I don't know who that man on television is, but he is not the same man <laughs> sitting on my couch, which is the highest form of praise of course. for a promo. So he makes it to uh, 
he makes it, he's in Penn State, and this is where Vince is basically just let me have the run of the place and let the young man have the run of the place. Bruce was in on it too. Bruce, uh, he asks um, uh, people in merchandise, they come down, they get the championship title, the boys are coming up, and uh, men and women giving him hats, you know, he could not have treated him better. He gets to cut a promo backstage with the Dudleys. Uh, he's there in his wheelchair uh, by ringside. And uh, Randy Orton and Batista are wearing caps at that time. I guess it was like a, their crew type of thing. And he said, I've always wanted to be in the ring. And Randy looks at Dave, and I barely knew Dave at this point, you know. He looks at Dave. And within about five seconds, Batista's got this young man on his shoulder and he's gently placing him in the ring. And this young man closes his eyes. He puts his arms up in the air wow. like it's the happiest he's he's ever been. And uh, mom, just constant supply of tears running down her face. So that's the backdrop that I have going into that night. And even after the big loogie promo, when we go off the air, Bill Goldberg had a guest there, too. And we led the crowd in chants for both Marcos and uh, and Bill's friend. And so I wish I'd wiped off the loogie, you know, when I when I was after the thing. But as far as the promo goes, a promo which was not popular with a few of the heels backstage who thought I made Randy look weak. And it's like, guys... I because just, you criticized his spit? Because I I stopped and I and I and I cut a promo about how I've been spit on, I've been peed on, I've thrown up on, pooped on, and all this, and that I you know I remember he did look fearful as I was cutting that promo this far away from his face, and I said I was bleeding in sixth confidence while you were still latched onto your mother's breast, and uh, people and I guess some of the people, the main players, thought I made him look weak. It's like. Remember the big picture. Like, you have to remember how Triple H acknowledged Cactus Jack as a threat. If you brush me off after everything you've done to me, spit in my face, beating me up, I was taking a major beating week after week after week after week, and you don't give me a hope spot. And you would tuck tail. Yeah, yeah, I tuck tail and gone. And besides, you're getting the win. Yeah. So now you have to acknowledge the, you need to acknowledge the threat the threat in front of you in order for you overcoming that threat to mean anything or else who did he beat yeah if you've beaten a guy you've built up to be nothing then you've you've beaten nobody yeah and so i i know a good promo when i hear it you know and i think i even alluded it to it in the 2006 book or 2007 book and said you know you don't think it was good ask randy orton how he thought that promo went because the difference, well, we'll get to this when we have the singles match. Um, you drew blood on yourself in the match. Yeah, the I did. Too. Yeah, I did the little hard way on myself, which is always effective, you know. Uh, you I, did an interview afterwards where uh, someone asked if Orton knew, and you said something like, Orton's not a good enough actor to fake. <laughs> that, <laughs> being not at that time he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. It's interesting, though, that um, not everybody saw what you saw. And you wrote in your book that it was several top WWE stars uh, 
do we not want to say that it was Triple H? Because that's certainly the inference. I think it was Triple H. I think it was, yeah, I think Triple H thought I made him look weak. Yeah. And I don't think Rick was happy about me talking about being on Six Continents because I, I don't know why. I thought it was a promo that everyone would have appreciated seeing where you're going. I don't know. It bothered me that that's something that seemed so easy to understand to me. And I think most of the fans got it, too would be a source of conflict at all. Fans talk about this era as being the era where it feels like things backstage became more political. I know politics have always been involved in wrestling, yeah. but would you agree with that assessment that it felt like it started to become a little more political than maybe during the Attitude Era? I do feel like that sense of camaraderie and the idea that we were all rooting for each other um, was... It not, almost was like a class system at this point. Yeah. At that point, I remember it not being, because we had the common goal, which was to beat WCW. Right. We were still competitive about our spots, but I did feel like, and I was, I was really busy every time I was there. Uh, I don't think I realized it until maybe the next time I came back that it wasn't the same as it had been, that there was a, a little, you know, a little more negativity. Wrestling fans, it's time to win with Zinn. Get to WrestlingPrizes.com to register for your chance to win one of four once-in-a-lifetime digital Q&A sessions with wrestling legends Ric Flair, Eric Bischoff, Jim Ross, or Mick Foley. Winners also get an autographed replica championship belt and a prize pack from Zinn, America's number one nicotine pouch. Register once per day, now through July 15th, WrestlingPrizes.com. No purchase necessary to enter or win. Open to U.S. residents 21 and over. Void where prohibited. For official rules, visit WrestlingPrizes.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. Something I want to bring up here, the Observer would write, It's not 100% The Rock will be doing Mania, but that is the current plan. At first, he said he would be returning in January, but his schedule wouldn't allow it. They can always do Foley versus Orton in a singles match if Rock can't do the show, but it's said to be penciled in, at least for now, as a probable thing. So it wasn't a guarantee. Everybody's got to be respectful of his schedule because obviously he's doing different stuff. But do you remember that being the backup plan, that if he couldn't go, it's going to be you and Randy? Because that would make sense. It, well, I, I don't remember. I, In my head, once Brian asked me if I'd be open to it, it was it was done. So uh, if there was that type of discussion, I wasn't privy to it. Did you, in your head, just from a, um, a cardio and a conditioning standpoint and ring rust, if that's even a thing, were you happy that you were going to be back on the big stage at a WrestleMania in a tag match because it could camouflage a little bit? Yes, I was. And this goes back to something we talked about in the last episode about how I never felt like I was at my best in a tag match because I had someone else to rely on. Yes. I responded well to the pressure. You know, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, I was a guy that got the definite butterflies and the jitters the nerves, especially after I'd been out of it for a while. 
Uh, and that's why I felt like when I did have the chance on the grandest stage of them all that I dropped the ball. Uh, which makes me want to ask here, and I know I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, but knowing what we know now about you from last week where you said you could – you didn't use the phrase lollygag, but, man, you, you're not pedal to the metal like in a singles match. You right. can um, – I don't know. You don't have that stress or pressure. Uh, in hindsight, knowing the way you're going to feel about WrestleMania 20 when it's over, because don't get me wrong, being in the, the ring with The Rock and Ric Flair yeah. at Madison Square Garden, wow, a 20th anniversary of WrestleMania, home run. But we know what magic is going to exist prior to this match with your promos with Orton yeah. and, of course, at Backlash. Do you wish in hindsight it would have been you and Orton? At WrestleMania? No, because uh, WrestleMania gives me a chance to to uh, team up with The Rock. It gives me a chance to be a part of a, a huge show. But it also gives me the chance to fail myself so that the next month it is a very much uh, a personal redemption story. Uh, it's. I really felt like I failed at that time. You had to experience the loss to I, get I there. I felt like saying. I had to experience to really fully appreciate. Uh, I had to have that valley to appreciate the peak. And what it comes down to is, uh, it dawns on me. This is Madison Square Garden. This is the arena that I grew up taking trains to, hitchhiking to. I'm in there with The Rock. I'm in there with Nature Boy Ric Flair, and I say a prayer. Before I go out, I don't normally pray. It's just my feeling God's got enough on his plate without... Uh, worrying about a match. Yeah, worrying about yeah uh, sports entertainment. But in this case, I don't, know if I, I don't think I got down on my hands and knees. I think right before Rock and I went out, I said, Dear God, please don't let me suck out there. That's the prayer. So you alluded to the home run. I'm going out there just looking to fly out to center field so I don't strike out and embarrass myself. Yeah. And that's not how you – you don't get into the Hall of Fame that way. Hoping to yeah, not yeah, suck. Hoping to not suck. And I didn't suck. No. But I wasn't swinging for the fences. I would have rather struck out knowing that I was taking my swings than to go out there and do what I did. I can't watch the match. Rick Flair, he feels like it was a really good match. It was a good he, match. He says, he, you know, and I'm like, Rick, I can't watch it. I can't watch it. And he says, no, you were great. You were great. But when I was in the ring and it's Rock and Rick starting, and Rick is one of only two people, the other one being Terry Funk, who had it every single time they walked into that ring. Like there was no place they would rather be than in that ring performing for you that night. Like given their chance of any other option, no, I'm gonna, I want to be in that ring that night. Uh, that's not a knock on anyone else, but those are the two guys I felt like came alive every single night, every single time. And now I'm getting to see Rick do this in front of me, right. the match that I'm in, and I'm getting the and and he's uh, uh, Rick's mimicking the Rock, you know, with the people's elbow. It's just great stuff. And now I feel almost like I felt when Les Thornton. The man of a thousand holds uh, is is working so well with the Bulldogs in the second match. And I lose all my confidence and I go from being this guy who had been the, you know, the three time WWE champion. And I just become somebody who, in my mind, doesn't belong out there. And I 
it is what it is. If you guys say it was yeah. very good, I'll trust you to say it was very good, but I can't bring myself to watch that match. I don't think I've ever seen more than 90 seconds of it at a time. Wow. Well, before we get there, uh, Orton's going to attack you on Raw from behind, send you to the hospital. But, of course, you return for the main event just in time to get some revenge. That's uh, almost like a Raw crutch at this point. You've been sent to the hospital and come back (laughs) just in time many, many times. Uh, The Raw from Portland on February 9th sees you cut another promo on Orton. And this is the one where you reveal that Orton went AWOL from the Marines. And at this point, that was not public knowledge. No. Maybe a few smart fans had read about it online, but... I probably shouldn't have gone there. I mean, I did it with his blessing, but, geez, that could have resulted in Randy being called up for action. What um, What do you remember about that promo and how it got greenlit and what the reaction was from the, from the crowd and from the boys in the I back? I think I was trying to talk about uh, the theory of transference. I wouldn't have called it transference, where Randy has questions about his own courage, which is why he questions mine. And I also believe we have to go back in time to see if that was the day that Rashid Wallace was traded from the Portland Trailblazers Mm. uh, while he sat in the crowd. I can't remember if uh, if I was in the ring afterwards. This may have been a completely different Portland experience. But I told um, Rob Van Dam that as a bonus for him, he was going to get to go to Rashid Wallace's locker and keep anything he found. And then uh, Rob says to me, like, does that mean he smokes a lot of pot, man? I go, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> as soon as I said that, you know, because Rashid, I believe, had been penalized for failing tests. Yeah. And he was, a, you know, he was a, a weed guy. Um, but I may be confusing my Portland, uh, my Portland moments. Uh, Portland, a great historic wrestling city. This is where they put you through the uh, the power bomb, the Batista bomb through the table, and all that jazz. Uh, but it does feel like, in hindsight, that these days, bringing up that you went AWOL from the Marines and you were court-martialed and all that, and your positioning as you know, it's not really legend killer versus legend killer, but it's coward versus coward. Uh, I could see how that would rub some guys the wrong way, but Randy was okay with it. Yeah, I shouldn't. I wish I hadn't done it. Wasn't worth the risk. The reward wasn't worth that risk. Um, I wish I hadn't done it. It did add to the the promo, but um, again, I wish I hadn't done it. So this is really the first time Batista is the one, you know, uh, doing some physical stuff with you. At this point, it had primarily been uh, Orton. Was was Hunter involved in position? I mean, this is his stable. I know he's got different plans for WrestleMania, but creatively, as you guys are running through this stuff or maybe going through, I don't know if you did a dry run back in that day or not. Is Hunter involved in that at all, since it is still sort of kind of his creative? I don't recall Hunter having a hand in it, at least not when I was there. Stephanie was the producer for some of our segments. Um and I, re- you know, I remember telling Randy he was supposed to hit me with the belt, and he had never done anything where you're using a, you know, foreign object like that. So my way of doing it, at least, I mean, it might not be everyone's. I said, you, what you do is you run into me as hard as you can physically with as much of your body as you can, while keeping, you know. So instead of coming here with the belt, 
you are a moving, you know, you, boom, you're moving and you've got that belt so that you, when you make impact, it looks good all over. That's my way of doing it. And just to show you, you know, the, the difference of interpretation, you know, I, when Randy lays me out, I say, so Mick, you, I say, Randy, so then you get in my face and you go, yes, Mick, you are my bitch. Like a whisper. And when Stephanie interprets it, it's, yes, Mick, you are my bitch. So I was like, I think my way's better. But at that, I think what we got was the yell. But that's just two different people's ways of looking at it. To me, the whisper's more effective than mm-hmm. the yell. You can't say the yell wasn't effective because everything we did was clicking. No doubt. Um, everything with the company at this point feels like the momentum is turning, including in February, Eddie Guerrero wins the WWE title at No Way Out. He beat Brock Lesnar. A lot of people wouldn't have ever predicted that that yeah. was in the cards for him. You had known Eddie for quite a while. Uh, what did you think of that? Oh, Eddie was, you know, he was just so super smooth. I was the, the commissioner when I think the lights switched uh, for Eddie as a character. This was going back to 2000, and uh, he wanted to be in the ring when China uh, wrestled for the Intercontinental Championship to make, he wanted me to make it a three-way so he could look out for her. And he just came alive in that vignette in a way that I'd never seen uh, Eddie Guerrero. Clearly, Eddie had charisma when he was, you know, especially him and Art Barr were a team, you know, but he had gone to being someone who was seen as the consummate professional and technician, but not necessarily a character. And this is just my my interpretation is this was the light switching moment. Boom, right there. And that was when the Mamacita stuff started. Yep. And now Eddie's in there just purely to protect China. He was to cover her fallen body, not realizing the referee's counting. But when the referee does, he, he moves those eyes around. And to me, a star is born yes. that day. It's not the great consummate professional that we saw in WCW and everywhere he's gone, he is all of that still, but now he's it's a character. He's a character and it takes off. And, uh, you know, later in time in 2004, I would be so fortunate to go to uh, Afghanistan uh, with WWE for their tribute to the troops. And because I'm F Foley G Guerrero, we end up rooming and we end up talking all night. No sleep at all. And it was one of the great, memorable discussions and one that I was so glad to have had, you know, because we lost Eddie, I guess, about a year after that. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that's happening at WrestleMania, of course, is Chris Benoit has won the Royal Rumble. So now he's got a title shot and he's got it against Hunter. But of course, we know that's not actually what's going to happen. It's going to wind up being a three-way that goes on last. Now, the three-way got, that I was told could never happen back when I had the chance to do a three-way. I can't wait to bring it up because <laughs> WrestleMania 15 was supposed to be famously Rock, Austin, Foley. Right. But supposedly, as the legend goes, Shawn Michaels felt like, nope, the main event of WrestleMania is mano y mano. It's not three guys. He goes to Vince and gets it changed. Well, fast forward literally five years, and now it's Hunter and Benoit. But what do you know? Shawn Michaels makes it yeah, a three-way. Right. And not only – look, Shawn, uh, to me – This is good Shawn now. This is good Shawn. Best wrestler of his generation. Yes. Okay? 
I'll describe greatest wrestlers generation generation. I describe as the era of the monthly pay per views. There you right? go. Greatest wrestler of that of our my generation. Um, but I was working so hard every week to lay down this storyline that so was cohesive, made sense. And then I believe Sean got into the match by super kicking Benoit and signing the contract instead of him. Done deal. And I was like. I don't think that's legally binding. Like, uh, I don't think that's the way documents go. Uh, but I just thought, that's what my editor at Alfred A. Knopf would say. That's just too convenient. You know, I just, uh, I bothered me. You know, like I said, that's the only match that I'm going to say did not give as much credit for attracting the attention as it deserved. Because I just thought what we put into storytelling was better than what they had put into the storytelling. Now, they were the ones who came up big on the grandest stage of them all. And I'm not trying to compare what we did in our match in the ring to what they did. Because oh, Well, just, you had a much better story. But to yeah. me, the greater issue to me is, wait a minute, the guy who said it shouldn't be a three-way now makes it a three-way? Well, that has to bother you a little bit. It did. Did back then maybe uh, the, the way the only thing that bothered me about it was that storytelling device that I thought was too convenient. Less than yeah, I wasn't. I I had always felt like it could be a triple threat, and that was borne out by the success of the triple threats they've had since then as main events at Mania. So the February sixteenth episode is where. You told us the story earlier. Randy was supposed to get this hard way blood yeah. uh, and punching you over the eyebrow. Um, of course, we know it doesn't really go expe- as exactly as we would have expected. Uh, Orton it still hit looks Foley. good. It looks really good. Okay, what's this is Meltzer? Orton hit Foley with seven hard shots in the temple, and he legit injured his hand in doing so. <laughs> Foley had major swelling near his temple from all the punches that the cameras on Raw this week were ordered to avoid <laughs> to concentrate on shooting the blackened and bloodshot eye. The eye didn't get discolored after the beating, but as Foley likely wanted it to, since this angle had been the, his creation from the start, Many people in the company were skeptical of the first part of it when he walked out on Orton, disappeared for six weeks, and was constantly branded a coward. Uh, but the company has finally agreed to it. So <laughs> the next week, which you sort of alluded to, Foley used no makeup on the 23rd Raw skit with Jim Ross. He actually did an interview with Coach in midweek. Mm-hmm. Vince hated it and said he wouldn't let it air. So he do the second interview with... Uh, with JR and and he says Foley is unique in that he doesn't want to use makeup for the angle. But nowadays when you can do it with makeup, it's just done so often. I often wonder whether risking eyesight problems to make it more legit when 70 to 95% of the audience will believe it was makeup anyway is worth it. In hindsight, is Belzer on something? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, I have some problems, you know, with my right eye. You might see me occasionally blinking. You think it's from that? Yeah, I, I do. You can see in photos uh, sometimes that uh, movement isn't the same. Uh, and Tara and um, Robert Fuller was my, you know, my hard, hard way guru, and he told me it was dangerous. And he said nothing more effective at creating realism, but it's dangerous. And in this case, you know, with Randy, it's not much difference, not much distance between the temple and the eyebrow, but he hit me seven times in a row in that temple. 
So it was another another one of these things, just like with the uh, the super fortified uh, hardcore title case that uh, Randy hit me with. You know, it was a worst case scenario. Like that eye is so swollen up and not a drop of blood, but it would play out. I have to think. Oh, I like to think that fans would know it was real. Like it, uh, like you. No, can, it felt real because felt the spit real. felt real. Yeah. Everything about this felt real. And I think the highest form of flattery I got is that when I returned home, my son Mickey. So we're talking two thousand four. He would have been three. He said, "Daddy, bad lady." Because to him, being ugly was the heels in the Disney movies. The bad ladies were the ones that, you know, the, the, the hag in, uh, in Snow White, uh, you know, the stepmother in Cinderella, and uh, the Urs- uh, Ursula, and uh, the Mermaid. one. Yeah, yeah, and also Sleeping Beauty, yeah. uh, the one that Angelina Jolie went on to play. So when he, that was his way of describing how bad I looked. And we've got a couple great photos, you know, of, you know, me with the kids. And that was a shiner to end all shiners. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty significant. So in Atlanta, that Foley memory is right. Uh, you're finally saved. Show ended with Foley coming out. Evolution Sands Triple H, who had left to get the strippers ready, came out for their gangland beating. <laughs> Orton again challenged Foley to a singles match. Foley said he knew there was no such thing as a singles match, so he wanted a partner for a two-on-three. They screwed up a little here, since everyone in Atlanta knew Rock was coming, since he'd been advertised, and that's why everyone bought tickets. <laughs> Even though it was in USA Today, most viewers at home wouldn't have known it. So instead of a big pop when Foley announced his partner, Orton basically said, we all know who it is, Mr. Hollywood and Mr. Walking Tall. They did act like Rock wasn't there and told Foley to call him up. Foley left the ring and Rock ran in. So in hindsight... But he's leaving out the, the important thing about, all right, I'm going to call him right now. I'm going to call him right now. And bailing out of there, like almost power walking and then turning around going, instead of me calling him, boom, here, here it comes. So it was... Yeah, it was unfortunate Rock had been advertised, but I don't think it hurt the pop. Uh, another one, I'll go on record, Road Warrior-esque. After the show, it's uh, Rock and Austin in the ring for 30 minutes, cracking jokes on the mic. This has to be fun. Just with <laughs> Yeah, yeah, cause, because Steve was, the, uh, Steve was, I don't know what they're calling a GM then. By then, I think it was GM instead of commissioner. And Steve felt like he couldn't do what he did physically, but he still had the ability to entertain people. Yeah. And he would do those great things where he would say, Lillian, you know, he'd get down on his uh, one knee and like he was proposing to Lillian. He said, put his hand in her, her hand and he'd Lillian, would you get me a damn beer? Like there was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, and Rock and I had that history when we were the Rock and Sock Connection of being out there for 10 minutes. We didn't put in as much time as Steve did, but just, Entertaining people when the cameras, I guess in some respect, cameras are never really off, but when the USA cameras are off and you're just doing it for the love of entertaining and because you want people to go home with smiles on their faces. Well, they had smiles the next day, March 8th. You reprised your famous, this is your life rock. (laughs) And this time they bring out some elderly women. Um, And I guess this is whose house you jumped off of when you were a kid. And they do these double entendres about, Foley eating her pie, and she had the best pie, and Rock calls you a sick freak, and 
then uh, mentions that she leaves her back door open for strudel. <laughs> Just way over the top silliness here. Yeah. Uh, but they show a clip from that Snuka Morocco cage match yeah. with you at ringside in 83. They bring out Snuka. Huge reaction. <laughs> what do you remember about that night oh man first of all i remember uh the young the the older woman i believe she was the mother-in-law of james spader i don't know how i remember okay mother and i remember talking to rock and saying i thought he was being a little too tough on her during uh rehearsal and he said well why do you think i said well rock everyone knows she's old like we can see that and he he nodded his head and he did not go uh, he did not he was not as tough on her on camera as he was. Uh, and she was, well, I no longer <laughs> serve my pie, but I do keep my back door open for strudel, which seems a little much to me, right? It uh, is. Superfly is supposed to come out. And this woman been in a lot of productions. I couldn't tell you what, but she's James Spader's mother-in-law. She's a veteran of stage and screen. And Superfly comes out. And he says, let me tell you something, brother. And he's supposed to say, say the Superfly loves pie. The Superfly loves cake. <laughs> and then the woman goes, uh, that was a pause long enough to drive a truck through. Because Jimmy forgot what he was supposed to say and didn't understand that there's a major difference in confectionery treats. Yes. And what they mean, you know, as euphemisms for uh, the lovemaking process. Yes. So there are a lot of wheels in motion. This will not go down as anybody's favorite segment. I got voted down because what I wanted to, to happen was I wanted Bob Orton to come out unannounced, like uninvited. And Bob has that voice that I think I said sounds like uh, <laughs> Clint Eastwood gargling on razor blades. You know, the Bob Bob Senior's Bob Junior's voice really gravelly. And Bob and I had been tag team partners in 1990. We'd done tagging on uh, independent shows for Herb Abrams, UWF, and overseas. Uh, on the same tour that I think young Randy was on on the night that my first child was conceived on the deck or the balcony of the uh, hotel, the Holiday Inn in Aruba. And I wanted Bob to allude to Randy being next door with his ear cupped to a jar and it made a big impression on him. And I wanted Brett to go, don't you remember your old tag team partner? And then Bob was going to put up his own video. And it would be the worst video package of all time. And that would be done like at the, with the equipment there, the dawn of the VHS. Yes. And it would just be like the starburst pattern and the swirl. And it would be the three or four photos that existed of me and Bob. And then Bob was going to grab the microphone and start singing memories. <laughs> He's saying memories. Now rock and I would put our guard down and start laughing and here's where the attack comes from behind but i got voted down on bob orton jr singing memories so i didn't get my way all the time uh, and i i believe that would have been classic but it didn't happen if you go back and you watch that segment now without the context of that story when you guys said something to snuck like hey take her to the holiday inn given what we know now Oh, Boy, that has a totally different connotation yeah, than the yeah, fun, right. lighthearted joke. Yeah. Um, when did you first hear that story? I know we're way sidetracked. About but, Jimmy? Yeah. 
I'd heard it as rumor. I mean, 10 um, years ago, it became a legal case, and we all heard yeah, all yeah, the details. Yeah, uh, but I'd heard it, you know, even when I first got in the business, I'd, I'd heard about a dogs showing up and uh, dogs and police officers not being able to control Snooka, and I had heard something about somebody passing away. And it's one of those things that you almost don't want to know, right? Because you don't want to believe it's true. You don't want to believe it's true. This guy, without Snooka, without that night at Madison Square Garden, and that really profound moment where I thought to myself, one day I want to make people feel the way that I do right now, I don't know if I'm taking that huge step into trying to be a wrestler. So, How hard is it for you to separate the art from the artist? Yep. Man, I think we all, we all have good sides and bad sides. Uh, we all have something positive to offer. I believe in uh, redemption, you know, eternal redemption, forgiveness, um, and, uh, man, it, it's some, there are times where I won't, you know, where I can't listen to somebody or I won't watch a movie with somebody. Um, then Jimmy's fall was really, it was really sad. I remember, uh, going back to like 2000 and maybe 14, it was a great night for me. It was, I think it was the day after my birthday, but three of my children went to an independent show uh, with me, my son Huey ended up doing the trust fall <laughs> while dressed up like a peanut, and uh, that was one of the great things about doing indies. You could do whatever you wanted, right? And nobody's face ended up in a cake. Uh, um, Noel was the MC. Dewey was dressed as a snowman. The BWO was there to help catch Huey. And as we're walking up the stage, I said, "How was that, buddy?" And his voice cracked. He said. Awesome. He was so happy to do the trust fall, uh, which is out there somewhere on video. But here's a great family moment for me. But before we went on, Jimmy's wife said, like, like, listen, just, you know, like, the, maybe the less you say to Jimmy, the better, because Jimmy feel he thinks he trained you. So Jimmy's mind was really going. Yeah. Jimmy's mind was going and he passed away uh, before the that court case was yeah uh he passed away and you know there were some who thought he was faking an illness and he wasn't you know his brain was not what it had been you know obviously his body you know had given out a long time before it was just it was a really sad ending to an amazing career i don't know what happened i oh, like no, to think no. that he's he didn't seek help when he should have because he thought everything was going to be okay and it wasn't. So uh, it's, it's difficult to separate the art from the artist. But even if you listen to something like uh, Imagine by John Lennon, you know, if you want to take the stand that Phil Spector produced it, Phil Spector killed his wife, it's, it becomes tough to eliminate Phil Spector produced songs from your playlist because he was such a big part of that. And I, I, hey, I, if somebody, you know, if you want to cut, all those people out, that's fine. Like I have, a, you know, a couple of things that I won't watch. I have a couple of restaurants that I, I won't go to and haven't gone to in uh, 10 years or more uh, because of where they choose to donate their money. And that's their prerogative. Um, so, 
I mean, I won't watch Raw. I won't watch SmackDown because, and, and I don't want to get political. And I, but I, I feel like a couple people who appear in that station have really done a, a job on misleading a lot of Americans. Is that, buddy? I thought you were going to make a joke about how no one can watch SmackDown <laughs> these days, or maybe you heard Al Snow had a creative hand. I was, I could just tell it was going to go that way. No, <laughs> I think I'm taking you guys down a road we don't want to go because we want this program to, to be, be an for, escape, to yeah. be an escape, and to be for everyone. Well, I, I just know in the context of wrestling, a lot of my uh, wrestling friends, because I, I have, you know, regular local friends, but I also have long distance wrestling friends. Yeah, yeah, and this yeah. is what we have in common. And some of them cannot enjoy or appreciate anything Hulk Hogan related. I, I don't know Terry Bollea. I mean, I've met him a couple of times, but as a kid, buddy, I was a little Hulkamaniac. Yeah. So it's hard for me to imagine I got to cut that part of my fandom out, but I also can sit down and watch a Chris Benoit match and appreciate, man, that match was something else and, and not necessarily feel like by watching it, I'm celebrating the terrible things he did. So I'm able to do that, but I know that a lot of folks can't. Yeah. And I, I personally have not seen a Benoit match. Um, and WWE doesn't make it easy to watch a Benoit match, right? Out of everything. Yeah, um, and there's the human story there with uh, Chris's uh, son growing yeah. up without a dad. Uh, you know, um, this is you know son from his first marriage, and how the wrestling family has kind of reached out to him and embraced him. And and similar, I mean, Brian Pillman also died, uh, not nearly the circumstances, but talking about Brian Junior growing up, yeah. uh, when, you know, without a father. Uh, the father figures in his life were could be really cruel, and here's this guy who has been embraced by this offbeat group of, group of people, and he's found he's found a home. It's a great story. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. So uh, Flair's working at the uh, time with a really bad neck. Um and, and I guess that makes sense why it's a three on two, but at least that night when Snook is there, I could see how if you're watching at home, you think, well, maybe Snook has got not going to round out their team, but he's going to be in their corner. But Meltzer would say he's not heard that that was the case. Did you ever think Snooker would be there? Um, Just based on the connection with both you and Rock? You know what? I think I may have pitched the idea that Snooker should be in our corner and Bob uh, Orton Jr. should be in theirs because it, it, it now you've got WrestleMania 1 and WrestleMania 20 because Snooker was the guy outside the ring. And uh, wasn't it Bob Jr. was outside because yep. it was uh, – it was no, it was Roddy and Paul Orndorff, right? They were against uh, Mr. T and, and Hulk. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Orndorf, so yeah. I thought it was a nice bookend. I believe I did suggest it, and it didn't didn't happen. So you're going to do the Hall of Fame ceremony WrestleMania weekend and present Don Morocco. Yeah. Uh, man, this is just all over your MSG memory here. Yeah, is it not? yeah. Snuck it right before Morocco here for the Hall of Fame. This is very Foley. And it was fun at that time because uh, the presenters were sitting out almost like on a dais. And I remember sitting next to Shawn Michaels, and I always had a good friendship with Shawn. 
Um, and I remember <laughs> Jerry Briscoe is on Big John Studd's video package, and he goes, if I had to describe Big John Studd in one word, it would be big. <laughs> I turned to Sean, I said, that was profound, right? So we were out there. I guess it's probably better for visually if the presenter's only out there for a short time. Uh uh, but I was really honored to be asked. I don't, I don't think I was Morocco's choice, but I think at that time, you know, you were kind of given somebody. I was lucky that when I, my number was called, I, I was given my choice and Terry Funk gave a really great induction speech. Um, at that time, I remember it, you know, I remember that fondly. Billy Graham was, uh, inducted, uh, Big John Studd. Junkyard Dog was uh, inducted posthumously, and uh, you know his daughter was there. It was it was great to be around the guys. Uh, we realized we've got something major to do the next day. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It was really a great way to. Uh, it's almost like you know your final meal before you walk that green mile. What was the vibe that weekend with everybody knowing Goldberg and Lesnar are finishing up and not on the best of terms? I don't think that soured anybody. You know, I remember Brock like apologizing to me and I said, no, man, you got to have to go after your dreams. And he did. And then when he came back to wrestling, he was, you know, he just asserted himself and made himself. It worked out. It worked out for everybody. Uh, You're one of the top attractions on the show. You're you're in the fourth place on the card. Uh, how did that meet your expectation? You know, just given the idea that it's you and Rock and Ric Flair all in the same room. I thought we were the first match on the main card. I think I fourth overall is what we're doing. Overall, okay. Um, man, uh, Conrad, I was so, I was just so scared and I just wanted it to be over. It wasn't, it wasn't that classic Foley presentation and, you know, getting up for it and peaking. Like, I just, if I could have had my wish and it would be over without me participating at all, like if I could just <laughs> blink my eyes and said, it's over and it was we good, we did it. I just, uh, uh, I didn't have my mojo, which was odd because in building that storyline, I did have the mojo and I was just, I was overwhelmed by the enormity of the moment. Again, it was rock. It was Rick. And Randy was, you know, young. Dave, I mean, he was new to the business and new to WWE. He had a few years on on Randy, and he, I just felt overwhelmed and like I didn't belong there. Yeah, I was. I don't want to overstate how disappointed I was in myself, but I was I was very disappointed. Well, what preparation went into putting the match together? You know, we've heard at various times when Rock would come back. Uh, he's going to be putting in a lot of time in the ring with guys like Curtis Axel or what have you, just getting ready for a match like this. But this is a return match for you, too. So are you guys going through stuff at a warehouse somewhere? Or? No, just that day. Okay. And it's probably, you know, probably too much stuff was set up. Uh, as we get into talking about the singles match with me and Randy, I'll talk more about that process. There was a lot of talk that went in, two sets of heat. Um, I, I took a clothesline from Batista that affected my voice. So the next day I was doing some stuff for WWE, and you could tell I was really hoarse. You know, just it caught me a little bit high. 
um, a little higher than I, you know, than you'd like. Um, and again, I can't tell you that much about the match because I've never watched it. I just know that uh, Rock and uh, Rick were electrifying, and that I curled up in a ball and. Let's talk about Rick for a minute because we know that you guys are going to have an issue. Um, it hasn't yet happened right. at that point. But you did say earlier when I, I sort of guessed that maybe some of the folks who thought that you hurt Randy in the promo, that it was Triple H. And you said, well, Rick, too. So could you tell, was there any sort of, I don't know if animosity is the right word. There's tension. Could you tell, like, we're not on the same page? No, because... Um uh, the first time Evolution uh, jumped me and beat me down, I was thinking Rick's going to give me a little retribution, you know, for for what I'd written in my book about him. That's where the hard feelings were. Um, and he didn't. He was light as a feather. And I even joked around with him about that. And uh, and he made it clear that he, he business and personal, they don't, you know, he's, gonna, he's a consummate professional. And that young man I talked about, Marcos, he um, he passed away very shortly after that, within a few days of that um, event at Penn State. And I had asked Vince if I could address the wrestlers. And Vince came on and he said, uh, Mick Foley would like to talk to all of you. Um, I know how busy all of you are on the road. Sometimes we forget about the difference that we are able to make in people's lives. And Mick would like you to like to remind you about that and here i go i'm used to addressing and would address later that night 12 to fifteen thousand, whatever the live crowd was and be completely comfortable doing that but now i'm among my peers it's different it's different and it was one of the most difficult things i had to do but what i wanted to do is thank each and every person who went out of their way to make one of his last days on earth one of his best days the mom had asked me if I would be okay with him wearing the stuff that we had given him for his casket. You know, mm. I'd be okay. Like, wow, what an honor that is. And I remember I, I even dropped that rare F-bomb, you know, because he was wearing Austin's shirt, you know, F-fear. And I remember saying, that's right, fuck fear. And it was unusual for me to drop that. And I remember Rick being very emotional and that it was like, uh, man, it was like a... It was a really emotional day, and I apologized to Rick for the way my book had made him feel. That would later go on to be a thing. It's like, I wasn't apologizing for what I wrote. I was apologizing that it had caused such bad feelings, which might seem uh, like it's the same thing. Uh, but there were a lot of tears among uh, the men and women you know, in that dressing room. And that was one of the most difficult things I felt like I had ever done. I'd just been at his funeral earlier that day, but I felt like everyone should know about the difference they'd made in that young man's life. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about WrestleMania. Your match begins with a Rock promo. Uh, Lillian's going to start with you, and then Rock just takes over, talking about Hurricane and Rosie and Lillian just can't wipe the smile off her face. Uh, it's really good stuff. Um, you guys go 17 minutes and three seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say, uh, Flair was in WrestleMania shape. Here's the real backstory. When Rock was a kid, he used to say, when I grew up, I want to be like my dad. But if I can't be like my dad, I want to be like Ric Flair. Uh, 
Rock was just mimicking Flair Strut and having fun doing all the Flair spots. Uh, Foley even did an elbow off the apron on Flair, and Flair had taken a backdrop on the floor. Flair or Foley has lost about 50 pounds, down to around 285, so he wouldn't be in bad shape for his return. Batista went to work on Rock. Batista still doesn't get it, but since everyone else in the match does, it wasn't a factor. Flair got slammed off the top, and Lawler was almost treating it as comedy. Flair did, uh, Foley did well. Again, there's major context problems between the buildup and what the match was, yeah. but it was good nonetheless. Orton and Foley actually went at it early instead of saving it for later. Orton sent Foley knees first into the steps. Foley was pounded on, including a ground-and-pound spot by Batista that he broke up with the claw. Flair and Foley worked, and I think that this was the first time the two were ever in the ring in match form. Flair did the people's elbow tease. Rock did the elbow on Flair on a rock bottom on Orton, but Flair saved. Batista hits the demon bomb on Rock, and Orton goes for the pin, but Rock kicks out. That allows the hot tag to Foley, who does the double-arm DDT on Orton, and pulls out Mr. Sacco, but before he could do it, Orton beat him to the punch with an RKO and a pin. The crowd went nuts for Foley after the match anyway, and he did the old Hogan after the Warrior match routine, three and three-quarter stars. So Dave doesn't give it a glowing review, but it is remembered fondly. Yeah, but... I think what he said about the context problem that's your issue built up to be a blood feud blood feud and now we're doing comedy there was elements of comedy in there that was great comedy between Rick and but out of context probably out of context yeah Um, but that's probably you know not saying we're acquiescing but that's probably what Flair and Rock wanted to do right and so it became more about what they yeah. wanted to do and less about what you and Randy needed I to do. I crawled into a, I retreated into a shell. I don't think I spoke up and offered that opinion. So that's really your issue. It's not uh, necessarily what happened bell to bell, but you didn't interject beforehand. I didn't interject and I didn't take steps to make it the best match that I, the best performance that I could have. And then I was just so happy to see those guys. It was almost like I dreaded getting the tag. Because I didn't feel like I, I just, I know, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here when I talk about how disappointed I was in myself. But, you know, the, the success I had in my career was about overcoming doubts and conquering those uh, insecurities. And on that day, I, you know, I lost out to those insecurities and those doubts. Pretty famous story you've shared when you come backstage and you run into Steve Austin. Do you want to share oh, that with us? Man. Refresh my memory. I know he, he was. He asked, it would have been the easiest thing to to pat me on the back and say it was good. I think the idea was, and he didn't do that. You asked, "How did you think you did out there?" And he said, "I thought it was okay." And he said, "I thought it sucked," or something like yeah. that. Yeah. The idea being, you were trying to maybe convince yourself it was okay, yeah. but he could tell you weren't satisfied with it, right? And he didn't feel like maybe you delivered the way you had in the past. That was the insinuation yeah. from the conversation that's been shared over the years. Uh, in the yeah, public. and that I, I think he uh, he knew that you know I had been greatly outshone and then willingly outshone, and that uh, it wasn't the match again. The context should have been a wild brawl. You yes. Know, so. 
three and three quarters stars is uh, you know on mania for two guys. I always have my first match in four years. It's a handicap match. Handicap with match. Essentially, a celebrity and an older gentleman and Flair. Yeah, I mean, not bad. Yeah, right, right, not bad. And maybe if I watched it back and I didn't know what the the scene, you know, the feelings were in my own head. But it definitely lit a fire. I don't know if it was on paper for us to have a, a rematch right away. That's what I wanted to ask. It came out in the Observer that it really bubbled out of WrestleMania weekend. So that yeah. wasn't the plan in advance. Like, in theory, this was the original blow-off. Yeah. yeah. But maybe you're like, no, I can do better. I, I think Vince sat me down and uh, talked to me about having uh, a singles match. Um, and I don't know if he shared my feeling that Mania had been a disappointment for me especially. Sorry about that. It felt uh, more like an attraction as opposed to a conclusion. A yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was happy to do the favor for Randy. It was really nice that the crowd gave me that response. I remember Rock literally going like this to me to let me have that moment. Uh, when I saw photos of myself, I just looked so drained. And you can't <laughs> this can't fake passion. But you also can't fake conditioning. You know, like that's what's good. There's a saying that says, you know, um, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Yes, sir. You know, and I, it certainly does. But it also it greatly reduces your ability to um, put on a show if you're drawn. If you can't, so breathe. Uh, you can't breathe, and it's just this withered, drawn. You just look drawn and exhausted, and that's not a good look. Um, so had I not had that opportunity to come back with Randy one-on-one, uh, -on -one, that match would have bothered me. It obviously still does, but it would have it would have eaten me up. So you, from your memory, Vince brings you that match. You don't necessarily bring it to Vince, right? He sits me down in his office, yeah, and proposes that match. Um, coming out of Mania, you're gonna you're gonna morph into Cactus Jack for what's gonna become a no holds barred with Randy Orton Matt, uh, with Randy Orton at Backlash for the Intercontinental Title. Um, but you wrote in your book Hardcore Diaries that you felt emotionally burnt out after WrestleMania 20, and you just talked about how you looked exhausted in photos. Why would? How do you? Kick it into gear. If you're disappointed in your performance and you are exhausted and you're burned out emotionally, but you know, I don't want that to be their last impression. I do want to do one more. How do you get in the right headspace for that? Man, I think I just felt like I needed to because the buildup was among the best things I'd ever done. Yes. Uh, Storyline, I pushed, you know, I'd fought and, you know, they tell you this is the hill you're going to die on when it came to having the loogie hocked on my face and uh, walking out of a match, that's the hill I was willing to die on. And I'd shown that, you know, my intuition was correct. Uh, the fans who forgave me readily. I think inside each of us, there's a, you know, wonderment about wondering of what we would have done in a similar situation. And I don't know how I got back and got my mojo back. I just know that I did. If I was 285, which may have been, I was 270 by the time I had the match with Randy. And, uh, you know, that next month I was, I think I had a 24-hour gym, a Gold's gym. And, uh, man, you know, it was cold. I remember, you know, really cold on Long Island, snow. I would usually go around 1 or 2 a.m. 
and pretty much have the place to myself. And I pushed myself, I pushed myself really hard. Again, I wasn't, I knew that this wasn't about how much weight I could lift. It was hobbies. My offense wasn't dictated on power moves. Cardio anyway. was the game. Cardio was the game. And I really pushed myself, but also that, that, uh, apparatus, it's got a name, you know, it's like a bike, but for your arms and you're working everything. Uh, you know, if I throw, if I'd known about water aerobics and the, you know, I, I, high intensity. What cardio were you doing with, with bad knees, with yeah. almost arthritic knees? Yeah, what, what they were arthritic, doing? but I could do the recumbent bike. Yeah. Um, and there was, uh, man, I wish I knew the name of it now. Life Fitness had a good one. Uh, it's like an elliptical. Elliptical, elliptical trainer. And going back to uh, 2000 when my wife and I had the Foley's Gym in Navarre, Florida, you know, I could go there after hours, have the place to myself. And I was wearing that thing out to get ready for those matches with Triple H. And so that, yeah, you know. You know, I'm not going to impress anybody in a weight room, but I was going to impress people when I was in that ring. So I did take it really seriously. And, uh, I mean, I would be driving down the road. Uh, I, I got pulled over at least once for speeding. And I just looked at the officer. I said, I'm sorry, officer. I'm cutting, I'm cutting promos in my head. And, uh, the guy knew I wasn't lying to, you know, cutting promos in my head. That's, it's a valid reason for speeding. You know, yes. I'm sorry about it. Try to keep speed down. These are going to be good, good promos, officer. Yeah. You know? Tune in. Bang, bang. And away I went. Yeah. I, I mean, it felt so real to me. And my um, 2018 uh, nice uh, 20 Years of Hell tour, I talked about one of the big challenges for me being was just to take those images that were so real in my mind like you could almost feel like you could reach out and touch him, almost like when you're watching a 3D movie and you can't help but reach out and try to touch that thing that's heading your way. That's the way I felt about the promos in my mind and the images I had that I wanted to bring to life in the ring. Like I can just about reach out and touch these things. And now the challenge is, can you take these images in this match that you have in your mind and bring it to life in the ring? So, boy, you did quite the job with these promos you were cutting in your head because April 5th in Houston, uh, you did a promo that uh, Meltzer said, by the time it was over, I had my first 2004, 2004 award winner decided as this was one incredible promo. This the promo I did in the rocking chair? This is when we pull out the barbed wire bat. Barbed wire bat. And, and I, think, I think I'm in a rocking chair, and I think in the long haul, the biggest part of this promo is it inspires – a young Bray Wyatt mm. who would later tell me that he, he, I remember him telling me, Hey, if you have a chance, this is before we got to WWE, I'm doing this thing. I've got a rocking chair. He alluded to the promo I did with Randy Orton. So if that is the, you know, that's cool, man. Yeah. Um, I you- thought it was one of the best things I'd ever done. And this is where Vince, talk to me about the wisdom of doing it backstage instead of in the ring because I could focus 100%. You didn't have to wait for beats or pops. Uh, you didn't have to get a cadence down. You didn't have to worry about somebody yelling what, you know, which is uh, much I love Steve. That's, that's an issue. It's an issue. Uh, I don't think I was going to get the what's, but by being able to do that backstage, you know, with the barbed wire bat in the rocking chair, um, 
alluding to the things I had done in Japan and the lengths I was willing to go, uh, the things I was willing to do to human beings who were respect, respectful and kind that I would have no problem. You know, I was wondering what lengths I might be willing, willing to go to Randy Orton. Meltzer said the exact same thing. This was a pre-tape promo, and it was better that way because it wouldn't have worked as good in front of a live audience. It ended him. It ended with him using the barbed wire bat and going mad while the people filming started freaking. Uh, of course, Flair and Orton are there to sell the reaction as they're watching on the monitor, and it's announced that after Triple H or after beating Triple H two weeks in a row, that Shelton Benjamin is now going to team with you, Benoit, and Michaels to take on Evolution. This is uh, one of those rare moments where it looked like the company had big plans for Shelton Benjamin. Yeah. And he's a guy who's been around and super reliable for a long time, but I think a lot of fans still look and say, man, I could have did so much more with that guy. He but- just had that tremendous singles match, right? Yes. Because I remember uh, a production, not production meeting, talent meeting, John Laurinaitis plays parts of that match to us. And it's just a masterpiece. It really phenomenal. is. A phenomenal match. Um, I do remember, I remember that match and being, uh, my dad had to drive me to the airport because I'd gotten food poisoning. Oh. I think even though I was dropping that weight, I, I gave myself that Easter Sunday uh, cheat day. And... Um, Something didn't bode well for me. So uh, if it had been another time, I wouldn't have even gotten on that plane. I felt really, really bad. Um, and I believe I wrestled that match in black jeans and uh, and like uh, black work boots, which was very unusual for me. Uh, I could go back and see, but I, I had the I didn't want I did not want to have a match on television uh, overruled on that one. I wasn't completely comfortable with the Cactus Jack transition, um, but that promo, um, that pre-tape promo was one of the best things I've ever done. And then after all the glitz and glamour of WrestleMania and The Rock and this unbelievable promo, you wrestle your next match at an independent show. Did? Uh, you're in Northeast Wrestling. At Rutgers University, it's Jerry Lawler versus Al Snow. You're in Al's corner. Coach is in Lawler's corner. All right, so I'm not it wrestling. Tur- um, it turned into a tag. Oh, it did? There's oh, I wanted to get some, I wanted to get some ring time. That's why. I wanted to get some time in the ring. Which is, imagine showing up to an advertise, and I'm not saying this to be ugly. It's advertised Jerry Lawler and Al Snow, and all of a sudden, Mick Foley's in the match? That's a whole new... Yeah, uh, coat of paint there, as Bruce would say. Um, so the go-home Raw in Chicago has you in full cactus mode, promising a bloodbath. Uh, Orton's trying to hit you with a chair, but you hit the chair with a barbed wire bat, and, of course, Orton powders. In the main event, you go 20 minutes in this eight-man tag that ends when Michaels pins Orton with a super kick, which I guess maybe doesn't make the most sense in the world since you're going to be in a match with him for the Intercontinental title, but... That's what happened. Who else was there that we could have beaten? Uh, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but if it's the same setup that we just had. Then it could have been Dave or Rick. A whole host of folks. Um, either way, though, uh, we should mention uh, Backlash gets quite the reception. Yeah. Four and a half stars, a critical success. 
Uh, Meltzer would say, by taking a bump off the ramp through the tables and one on the tacks, Orton, as weird as this sounds, added toughness to his aura that needed to be added to be a money player. It's easily the best match of his career against Mick Foley. While regular usage of matches of this type are negative, because the WWE hasn't done this type of match in years, it was very effective. Foley, who said before the match he was expecting this match to be one of his career highlights, lived up to those standards, even though he has not done a singles match in more than four years. The key point of the match is, just like Foley did for Triple H on two straight pay-per-view shows in 2000, he had Orton beat him in a great match under Foley's rules. When it was over, Triple H gave the line that Orton is no longer the legend killer, but a legend himself. And in his first singles match in four years, Foley, motivated by the fear of failure, was his harshest critic. He said he set his mind to the idea that WrestleMania would be one of his best performances, but he felt he didn't deliver, saying in an Edmonton Sun interview that he couldn't maintain his intensity. Quote, I accepted that there probably is no such thing as real retirement from wrestling, end quote. He said if the match came up short, he'd have to recognize something was missing. Since the match did anything but come up short... He's indicated he's up for doing one or two matches per year. As things are scheduled, he'll be back probably in September, partially to promote the children's book he's doing with WWE called Tales from Rascal Lane. So let's talk about the the beginning of that write-up, that Orton had sort of earned his stripes. Mm. Was that... I mean, how important was that from your standpoint in telling this story? Really important. For me, if the guy I was working with wasn't better off after he worked with me, then it was the matches weren't a complete success, no matter how good they were. Right. Especially if somebody was less valuable than they were, which I don't think was the case. But there were a couple, you know, what I thought were, you know, uh, swings and misses, you know, where guys were not necessarily better off. But by and large, I felt like that was the case, that uh, almost everybody who worked with me felt like it had been beneficial to them. And in the case of Randy, it was so pronounced because we're going to take you to my post-match, uh, the hours post-match, and then we can go revisit the match in a little bit. So I, I had driven. I had a red-eye flight out of Edmonton. I uh, dropped all that weight, so I was going to reward myself. With 272 is what day 272, writes. yeah with a couple of Tim Hortons donuts. But before I could go in and have the Tim Hortons donuts, I threw up in the parking lot, probably because I had a concussion, you know, probably from taking the back bump onto the, the ramp. I think as you get older, really you see the knees were the first thing to go on boxers. Maybe it's our neck strength. Mm. And I think maybe that's why some of the older guys are having problems with concussions on bumps that would seem to be normal bumps that they could have done in their prime without that type of fallout. So I throw up in the parking lot. I catch my flight. I fly to uh, Toronto where my bags are lost, and I've got to wait for four hours. Now, I get back. Uh, my son Huey's in the hospital for dehydration. You know, wow. when you're a little guy, uh, that type of thing can happen. So I give my wife a break. I go to the hospital for three or four hours, spend a little time with the, the little fellow in there. I go back to watch Raw, no sleep at all. And Randy Orton might as well be a different human being because he is treated that way by the crowd in Calgary that night. And I thought, ah, man, like I, it dawned on me what we had done. Having the great match, 
and that post-match glow, that's a great thing. But to see that it had done exactly what I hoped it would do, and then some, that was the really gratifying part. Uh, within a couple of weeks, Randy was being cheered, and they put his face turn into play, which I thought was way too early. But the fact that you had this guy that people weren't fully behind. They weren't sold on him. sold on him. Uh, the respect wasn't there. Man. And then to know that that match played such a role and to have Randy 16-time time champion. I think so. Who still, as of a few years ago, thought of that match as the best one of his career. Uh, and probably you could go through and pick out a, a few dozen, you know, that technically were, <laughs> were better, better matches. But as far as... Doing something for a guy and allowing the fans to see him in a different way, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with anything I've ever done. And I'll put it out there, you know, for the larger wrestling world to have a discussion about a match. Maybe uh, Flair making Sting at you know, uh, one of those original clashes. Uh, but I was really, really proud of what we had done in the ring, what we had done to build it. In the, the uh, storytelling arc, it was good for me to have that setback at Mania so I could uh, climb that mountain and, you know, stake my claim up there. When you look back at the way that match was put together, is that something you had in your head weeks in advance of here's the type of match I want to do? Yeah. So I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, as I think that's important on this show. Uh, I love the idea of let's call it the ring, you know, but those days are kind of behind us. There's only three matches I've been in that were planned from A to Z. One of them was uh, with Triple H at the Royal Rumble. One of them was with Randy that night in Edmonton. And another one was when I showed up to do an FMW stadium show. And Wing Kenamura handed me like eight sheets of notebook paper. Uh, and I looked at it and went, sounds good to me. And had zero input in what was a very good hardcore wild match, you know, but it wasn't like, I do have an ego when it comes to these things. I love putting my imprint on something, but when someone has clearly worked as hard as he had to put together something that made me shine and put me over in the end, Let's go I was okay with that. Let's do it. Uh, so I made such a wise decision in that as much as I kicked myself in the butt for doing the car show in Huntsville the night before I worked with Triple H at the Garden, I decide, I cancel an event in St. Louis the day before um, my match in Edmonton. So I fly into Edmonton the day before, which should, I urge any wrestler, please take before care your of yourself matches. before your big match. And Randy comes up to the room. I've never had somebody, you know, this is steamboat and savage type stuff. And Randy, just that moment we had, you know, like we don't have to have an in-depth discussion about anything as long as we both live, you know. We have that moment, not only what we created in the ring, but that night before. And his eyes are just, he's just taking it in, absorbing it all. But even with everything we had planned, if we hadn't relayed that match to Michael Hayes, and then Michael Hayes looked at us and says, you're going to need more time. And he goes to talk to Vince, and 16 turns into 26. Mm. And that's what we needed to tell that story. Otherwise, we've been rushing through it. Uh, a few of the great moments to me in the match. First of all, there's this, this very creative <sighs> break where I go to <laughs> set Orton on fire, and Bischoff comes out, claims that he'll have the... Uh, 
<laughs> the the match will be stopped. Yes. And that gives me a very creative way to catch my breath. And then we also have the moment where after Randy has taken his RKO, it backfires. So instead of me being the guy uh, who had a uh, worse conversion rate with thumbtacks than Wiley Coyote had with <laughs> Acme products, and that I was always going to end up in the tax that I brought into the ring. Right. Uh, Randy ends up taking that that RKO in the tax. And again, I say like, Randy, very, very good wrestling at, you know, the theatrics of it, but he's young at that time. You can't fake the shock that he was in. You know, he was, his eyes were just wide open. I bring him up to the, the, the ramp, up to the ramp and I throw him off the ramp, which also gives me a little bit of time to, uh, uh, to rest up as that camera goes over and over and Mike Kyoto goes to check on Randy and all Randy can say is, Kyoto, those tacks were a bad idea. He's re- really feeling it. And now I come off that ring apron with what I think is the best elbow of my career, partially because it's captured with that low angle shot. Couldn't have dropped a better one in my life. Originally, I was going to drop it on him on a gurney. But those gurneys are built like it's like that that WWE table that won't give unless something is manipulated, yeah. right? Um, so I, I man, I, I even sense there's no way I can drop this elbow on Randy on this steel gurney without my body just being jolted, and it's not going to look good anyway. Something's got to give, so. That's where, you know, the platform is just enough so that when he hits it, he goes through it. And now the elbow I drop is onto the debris. So it's, it's, I'm not going through a table. I'm not, I'm not breaking anything with yeah. the elbow. I'm dropping it onto something that's already broken. And it's, man, it's just a, it's a beautiful elbow, which makes Randy kicking out of it even bigger, even bigger. Uh, when you first lay this match out to Michael Hayes, and we've got all of the props, if you will, does he feel like he has to run that up the flagpole, or is it okay because it's pay-per-view? He does run it up the flagpole. Vince knows ahead of time that I, I want my toys. You know, it's understood that I'm going to have my toys. He doesn't like the powder, hates the powder as a cutoff spot, but he, he grants it to us. Um, there was one funny moment backstage where uh, they want Randy to come out wearing a hockey helmet. And uh, R- Randy says, I don't know, Michael, I feel a little funny. And Michael yells at him and says, Vince wants to see that effing helmet. And Randy goes, OK, he goes, I'm just ribbing you. You know, so he would have looked ridiculous coming out. And you could you could argue that Randy should have planned a better, <laughs> a better weapon because Randy comes out with the. The smaller of the two barbed wire weapons. And in my head, it's that uh, crocodile Dundee. That's, That's not, not a knife. knife. This is a knife. So Randy goes to do his thing and has all the, you know, the authenticity of a wire snake springing out of a salted peanut can, right? He goes, moing, moing. <laughs> and I knocked that thing out of his hand. And now we're off to the races with the, uh, you know, the 26 minutes of mayhem. Was he, um, was he nervous about taking the big bump into the thumbtacks? Yeah, but he wanted to do it. He What's wanted- the advice that you would give him? Like, okay, here's the. Is there a right way to take yeah, that? Just uh, a thousand of them doesn't hurt that much worse than one or two in your hand. Oh. You know, I believe he wanted to do it. 
just like Edge wanted to do it two years later. And the fact that he did it without a shirt and that it was such a phenomenal image, you know, I, I mean, I, I wish I'd wet my hair down. You know, it's about the only thing I can say I wish I'd done differently. But in pre-match preparation, preparation, I go to the well. I listen to Winter by Tori Amos, which is my go-to song. Uh, and when I come out of there, it's like I'm flying on a cloud, similar to the way I described the way I felt. January 10th, 95, before that big uh, barbed wire match. Smaller in stature, but big in my head with Terry Funk. Eight months before we do the King of the Death match tournament. But I remember Stacey Keebler walking up to me and saying, is this going to be one of those bloody things? And I go, oh, yeah. Like, I was so locked in. You know, I was just so, I was exactly where I should have been for WrestleMania. And I didn't get near there. And I realized I don't have another chance. Like if I, this one comes up short, I'm likely not to go again, not to try it again. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't want you to give me a number, but was your WrestleMania payoff substantially more than your backlash payoff? Yes. Partially because I argued. Okay. After receiving it, that it should have been more. And uh, and eventually it was. Well, the backlash match was certainly more creatively rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you look back at that match, is that top five for you? Do you think? Yeah, it's number one. Really, backlash is number one for me. And then where does the the mind games match wind up? Two or three. Okay. Yeah, Hunter and me at uh, Rumble. Rumble 2000 is either two or three. That's probably my favorite of the. Three. Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was really beautiful. Um. But Mind Games is there two or three. Would Mind Games be higher if I had a different finish, do you think? It's uh, like a DQ. I, well, you still can't get much higher than two uh, or three. I think what made Backlash so special to me is that it was my redemption. Whether people felt like I needed to be redeemed or not, I felt like I did. More than that, Mick, you you helped make a guy. You know, and I know yeah. you're not going to phrase it that way, but let's put into context where Randy Orton was before his program with you. And again, this is April. Uh, five months later, he's the champ. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that would have been possible without your feud. He would have gotten there eventually. 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 Uh, it was definitely, oh, man, I had a lot of people who helped me out along the way, right? So when I was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, I, it was just a year after the WWE. I did not want to do the same, you know, same type of promo. So in verse, I wrote my ABCs of wrestling where uh, from A to Z, I picked out somebody and, and I did it as a poem. Uh, and I, I think, you know, when it got to uh, <laughs> talking about uh, F was Frogman LeBlanc, who's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a enhancement talent in Dallas. Frogman LeBlanc, Nasty Ned, you're the reason I'm standing here today. I've never seen an elbow drop that worked in MMA. (laughs) So I had no shortage of people willing to help me, sometimes to the detriment. You know, sometimes you're helping build somebody. He's going to become a competition to you, but you do it out of the goodness of your heart. And you probably you sit down and you talk about issues, social issues, whatever. You're not going to you're not going to be on the same page on a lot of that stuff. But nonetheless, we when we want to help, that's the best part of ourselves coming out. The part that helps because. And I just saw a great uh, documentary on Motown 
I uh, just watched it last night or early this morning, about 4 a.m., and that was what Smokey Robinson was talking about, the fact that he actually wrote and produced a lot of the great hits that the artists of Motown had. So he is building competition by giving away some of his best songs. Uh, but you do it because it's in your heart to give givers and takers in this world, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm a giver probably to a fault, you know, uh, but that is part of what made me who I was in wrestling. If I had been someone just looking to take, I don't think I could have done the things I did. But other people willingly gave to me. You come back through the curtain. Are you on cloud nine? Oh, yeah. How about Randy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's really happy. Is this one of those moments where, um, you know, in sales, there's a joke that when a guy makes his first sale, they cut his tie or whatever. Is this sort of like that with some of the guys for Randy? Because at this point, he's not been in a feud like this or a match like this or had this experience. And I think we sometimes forget how young he was here. I mean, just to put this in context, he was at his prom about three years prior to this, and now he's here with you. Uh, that's crazy to think you've got that much life experience. Prom. That yeah, his, his prom. prom. Yeah. yeah, he's had a driver's license five years at this yeah, point. Yeah, and now here he is in a pretty big time spot. This has to feel like you've done something good, and all the boys know it. Yeah. And I think even the guys uh, who may not have liked the promo when they saw it, whether they realize, I don't know if they sat down and thought to themselves, geez, I guess that did play itself out well. And by, by Randy showing some fear, acknowledging the obstacle in front of him, he has made himself far bigger yes. than if he had never acknowledged the obstacle. And that's, that's the story I wanted to tell. So Randy overcame. I mean, I was battling my own personal uh, expectations and disappointments, but Randy was, he had helped create me into that mythological figure I needed to be to make yeah. him bigger when he beat me. It was fantastic. I hope everybody goes out of their way to see it. And I hope that, uh, folks are able to see cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. <laughs> Definitely not a plug. No, not a plug. It's a public service announcement. So we are going to do a cameo, right? It's a tradition here on the show that we're going to finish with a cameo and you get tons of requests, but every week we're going to pick one that's a little special. Pick one. Okay. And today we've got a special one. And by the way, next week, as a reminder, we're going to be talking about Spring Stampede 1994. We talked about Max Payne before, but now we're going to talk about you teaming up with them to take on the Nasty Boys in a Chicago street fight 28 years ago right here on Foley's Bar. That's a nice one. Okay, so let me get ready. You, you guys have seen the behind the scenes here, but the hope I have when I, when I do these is nobody's under the belief that I'm that are, we are three separate people, right? Right. But hopefully, the way it's done, we allow people to escape and they're visiting these friends. So this mask, which is made by a young man in uh, Bangkok, uh, has... It's not you. It's not meant to be taken off quickly so many times. So it's seen its better days. But by creative uh, uh, camera angles, we are going to going to do what I did in my career. We're going to play to my strengths. Going to avoid my weaknesses. And this is a birthday from his best man. Chris is turning forty. Okay, so here we go. I wish 
you a happy birthday. I wish you a happy birthday. I wish you a happy birthday and nice days all year. So bring me some birthday cake now. Bring me some birthday cake. Bring me some birthday cake and bring it right here because I won't go until I get some. I won't go until I get some. I'm not moving till I get some. So bring it right here. Good tidings to you for all that you do. Good tidings is birthday and nice days all year. Don't give me that cake. Whoa. Well, I was not expecting uh, that degree of intensity. I thought when Mankind said he wanted to sing that you were getting the fun-loving, lovable, rock and sock connection Mankind from 1998-1999. You got the boiler-dwelling guy. I'm so sorry about that. So let me make it up to you with a more uh, acceptable birthday song. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chris. Happy birthday to you. Hey, it's the hardcore legend, Mick Foley, wishing you a happy 40th birthday. Oh, yeah, this comes to you from Phil, who was your best, best man at his wedding. And he wants me to say hello to your family, your beautiful wife, Kate, and your children, Theo and Josie. And I hope you guys from the UK are now enjoying life in Oz. And I I just realized that... uh, Actually, with Mankind singing his birthday song and mine singing up mine, we have a unique chance here to have something of a talent show. Uh, just so you know, we're, rec- we're you're being filmed for the Folius Pod broadcast. And uh, I think, uh, Conrad, you are just stunned by the <laughs> quality of, of this video, right? So uh, what we're going to do, uh, Chris, uh, I think I'm a pretty... I wouldn't be proposing if I didn't think I just won this thing hands down with my rendition of a classic. But I see that another guy who bills himself as the hippest cat in the land would like to be part of this, too. So uh, I'm going to open up the DMs for free. And uh, you, uh, Chris and Phil and your wife and your children, uh, Theo and Josie, can vote on who they think it was. It's probably me, but I'm going to give this next guy his due. So hold on just a second. Let me introduce to him. He is the hippest cat in all the land. He is... (laughs) Do love, that's right. Oh, yes, and the do love is about to take you on a stroll down memory lane. Holly jolly birthday. It's the best time of the year. Have no fear. The dude is here. All your blues are going to disappear. Have a holly jolly birthday. But please don't you be rude. Conrad, listen it. Say hello to those friends you know, though they're not as cool as the dude. But who is, whoa, ho, this video sent to you from me. This Phil Cat must really care about you, paid Foley's staggering fee. Have a holly jolly birthday. In case dude did not say... Oh, my God, I have a holly jolly birthday today. Do love, sending you blessings of peace, love, and understand. I think it goes without saying who won this contest. Ow! Have mercy. Oh. Uh, 
that was that was that was good. I, I didn't know we were allowed to have our own music here. I still don't think it's as solid an offering as mine. I, that'll be borne out in the results. Uh, maybe we could take a poll here on Folius Pod. But can I just go over something? Just I'll feel better. Whoa, ho! This video sent to you from me. Phil must really care about you. He paid my very reasonable fee, all things considered. Holly jolly birthday. In case you did not hear. Oh, by golly, I have a holly jolly birthday this year. Yeah, that felt good, didn't it? Felt darn good. Yeah, I still think I won the contest, but uh, it's up for a vote. Chris, thanks so much for being a fan. Phil, thank you for thinking of me to make this day nice. Yeah. Boom! Nailed it, right? Uh, that might be the best one yet. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Uh, cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Look, Bret Hart is the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. But he doesn't enjoy these as much as I do. I don't think he has a song I don't or think costume changes. No, no costume changes. No. And uh, and I get that you can see, like, I, I have that glow, right? And now I don't get hurt. No more late night emergency room visits. You give a few me a few cameos a day, and I'm perfectly content. Well, uh, I encourage everybody to check it out if you haven't already. That's the perfect birthday or anniversary or pick me up or whatever. Conrad, how long have you and I been talking? Uh, today, three hours and change. <laughs> A three hours and 20 minute mark before commercials and theme songs. Hey, right listen, I want to say to everyone who's chosen to make Foley's pod part of their lives in some way, shape or form that I know there are a lot of choices out there. Yes. And uh, I'm really enjoying doing this. I, I hope that all of you are, too. It's not lost to me that without people listening, I don't have the chance to do this. So thank you, Conrad, for uh, believing that I was capable of this. Dude, Thanks this to every one of you. Uh, for turning this uh, show into a juggernaut. And it is. <laughs> wow, Foley is pod. We'll see you next week right here. Talking Spring Stampede 1994. Yeah.